millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. This week's episode of Book Sheet is brought to you by Audible. For a free 30-day trial, visit audible.com slash bookcheat or text bookcheat to 500-500. Hello and welcome to Book Cheat, the book club podcast where I've read the book so you don't have to. My name is Dave Warnicke and on each episode of this show we look at one of the classics. And for our first episode for a new decade, that is 2020, a new year as well, I should probably say that. I am very I'm very happy to be joined by Matt Stewart and Cass Page. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having us in your in your book depository. Is that what you call it? Suppository. Suppository. Book suppository. Thank, thank you. you for having us up in here. Yeah, it is great to have you here. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much. It's warm, it's cosy. That's where I like to do my reading. I... Hey, I'm happy to be a man of comfort for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, new year, new us. Here we are. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I have had a, I've had a luxurious six weeks off. Oh, that's took, took a Chrissy break, took January off. Now month, we're back. Month is like, oh, decent. Six weeks is like, oh, holiday. Yeah, it's just like a proper, like long yeah. service leave that I do not deserve. It's hey. only been a bit over a year for the show. No, I think I think you deserve That's it. That's a good innings for a podcast, I Especially reckon. when you've got to read a, like, often chunky books. At, at, and that's the first step. Then you've got to write a whole report about that's it. That's right. So I yeah. want the people to it's know. It's a heavy workload I show. didn't take the time away from reading. I was, I was trying to get ahead. Yeah. Use that six weeks, I think, wisely. I've also uh, had a break from this show. I think last time you had me on was at least 12 months ago. And it. Um, that just doesn't seem right. And I've been. <laughs> I've also been uh, reading. Really? Oh, well, I, I often you. ask the guests what they've been reading. Okay. So in that last year, have you read anything? Well, I know I have. I've read some things, but also. Um, I'm I'm sort of a more of a modern man these days. I don't I don't read books. I listen to books. Ah. So I've I've been uh, I joined an online book reading thing. Book suppository. A book suppository for your ears. Right. Um, and they and yeah, I re- uh, you get one a month, and then you can pay for more. But I've just been doing the one a month for a couple of months. So I got. Is this audible? It is audible because they You've are a sponsor of, of the show, so oh, you can definitely okay, say great. their name. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, and it's been really good. So the uh, the first one I did was Jimmy Barnes's autobiography. Was it narrated by him? Yeah, <gasps> so good. I've oh played God. bits of it actually for you, Dave. <laughs> no, he's he's great. At the he's start a storyteller. One, one chapter he starts by um, singing the drum fill from the theme from a seventies music show in Australia called Countdown, and it goes something like. <laughs> And he he says that in the audio book, and then I got given the the paperback version of the book for Christmas. Yeah, and he it's written like that. 
It's written that in. Yeah, it's written in. He's written drum. He probably couldn't have done extra content between the two mediums. Yeah, yeah surely. I reckon he's written that in because he's knowing one day I'll do the audiobook version yeah. of this. Yeah. And I have heard that you are supposed to be exact what's on the yeah, page. Even, yeah, well, even it would typos? be an accessibility, accessibility issue right. as well. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that so makes he sense. was like, "All right, I'm gonna one day I'm gonna do digga 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 digga," and it is so bad. The drum fill, it's so bad. It's good. <laughs> it's so good. It's bad and back again oh. to good. But I, uh, yeah, I, that one and Steve Martin's Born Standing Up. You ever oh, great, read that? yeah. Which I've been recommended to me a million times. So, uh, but is I, that also Steve Martin? That is also Steve Martin. So oh, great. I, I love an autobiography, especially when it's been read by the writer. It's pretty sick. But yeah, I don't know what. I should maybe I'll uh, do today's book. I'll listen to that someday. Hopefully, Dicko himself is reading. <laughs> do you reckon, do you reckon he's Dicko Dixon? Charlie, touchdown! Was that Mark Holden? That's, Shit. Ma- that's Mark Holden. Oh crap! Anyway, he steals other people's catchphrases that he used to be on TV with. Good on you, Dicko. Um, Cass, great to have you back as well. It's been a while. Probably not as long as we've had since Matt's. Did I do loser. something? I've been meaning to ask. Have I have it, I hurt you? It would be funny if you had done something, but I still do another podcast. Do go on, uh, do go on with you every single week. You've only hurt me in the book cheat universe. The way I punish you is by not inviting you onto this show. Yeah, the BCU was a mess, but the DGO verse. Oh, oh my god. So much going on. Well, the DGO verse and the SP verse, Sans Pants. Ah, yes. Which is uh, the podcast network that you are a part of because you do many great podcasts with, with uh, that gang are coming together for a great cause. Yes, coming we are. up. In t- we've just put on sale in a couple of weeks' time, Thursday, February twenty. The Sans Pants and the Planet Broadcasting Network, which is what do go on and book cheat and primates Matt show and a bunch of other great shows are a part of. The two networks are coming together for a fundraiser extravaganza. And we hate each other. Oh, oh. so much. So, <laughs> I think it's worth noting that um, there will be a live show, but there will also be a game show where we will fight to presumably the death. Yeah. So if there's anyone across the two networks that you do like, come see. It might be the last time we're alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this I think this is the only cause that I would ever be in a room with someone from Sans Pants. Oh, yeah, for. and I would never work with Planet Broadcasting. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> that feels so mean. I'm so sorry. I know we're ripping, but I still feel bad. Well, you, you're right, too, because um, people on the internet don't often understand irony. So That's true. There's, there's someone listening to this going, I'm confused. They're in the same room now. <laughs> no, no they're, in, they're at home being like, oh, right, okay, so this would be one of the ones where they're doing a correspondence, so they're not actually in the same room together. Right. Okay, no, okay, headcanon accepted, move on, they hate each other. There will be a murder at the time of the game show. Yeah, that's right. Come down and see a live podcast murder at yeah. uh, Howler on February 20. So it's Plumbing the Death Star, which is uh, one of the great shows from Sam's Pants. We'll be doing a live podcast first, and then the second half it will be a game show co-hosted by myself and Jackson Bailey. And uh, it's two teams, one Planet Broadcasting aficionados versus Sam's Pants aficionados. Planet Broadcasting aficionados. So just big fans just of big Planet fans. Broadcasting. <laughs> Well, the people that are inside the Planet Broadcasting, they know it so well that they are big right. fans themselves. Absolute uh, I think it's going to be two teams of four, and uh, so lots of great people there from all different podcasts. And all the money will be going, raised will be going to Wildlife Victoria because Australia, as uh, you've probably heard about it in the news, no matter where you are in the world, it's been worldwide news. We had some horrific bushfires, some of which are still burning out of control, and um, 
lot of uh, wildlife has been affected by that. So we thought we'd come together, put aside our differences, and kill each other in the name of charity. Affected yeah. is is the most gentle way of saying wiped out. Yeah, half, um, over half a billion. They said like a now, month ago. It's now it's one billion. One billion Jeez. native animals have been killed. Jesus, yeah. I know it's so bad. It's one billion, like horrific. oh my god, that's hard to th- like. You can't fathom. comprehend it. And yeah. they're the ones that are that have died. There's also lots of other ones that have you know lost their habitat or have been burnt or you know have smoke inhalation that kind of thing. And lots of people uh, are required to help keep those animals going. So that is what we hope to do. Some of them are just in a bit of a funk. You know, yes, like you would they, be. yeah, they're sort of like, well, I'm not near the bushfires, but I just feel a bit off. Yeah, and we're gonna send a DVD player to that animal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be able to watch Sex in the City until oh, they feel a bit better. That's a beautiful gesture. Yeah, that's big tub of ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Bring the uh, girls round. Yeah. Good luck feeling bad after that marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to you, I say. You little numbat. <laughs> Oh, oh, numbats. Oh, numbats. If you are not from Australia, please Google numbats. They're a beautiful, beautiful little thing Love we have. Love a numbat. They're so fun. So cute. All right. Well, we are here to talk about a book, a classic book, uh, probably a classic amongst classics, I would say this book is, mm-hmm. a book that I've wanted to read for a long time in my life because it's often referenced, particularly the opening line, which I'm sure we'll talk about, <laughs> but I had no idea what it was about, and that is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Now, is that famous opening line the one about it being the blurst of time? That is absolutely right, really? <laughs> you stupid monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the, the great Simpsons references, of course, yeah, the opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, but then you get <laughs> monkeys on a... Who was, who was that who set up the monkey Mr. writer's room? Burns. It was Burns, right? Burns. <laughs> the blurst of times. Oh, man, that's good. <laughs> that's funny because, like, even if it, it nailed an already written book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you stupid monkey. <laughs> So we all know that line, but do you guys know much else about this book? <laughs> Blurst of time. <laughs> that is so funny. I know. Oh, they my God. Of, they didn't that's just change so one letter. They put two in there. God, that's funny. Oh, what that's, are the odds? If they said the curse of times, and we would we, yeah. we would have moved on with our lives. It would have. Blurst. I bet you they ran a bunch of different options, <laughs> yeah. and Blurst would have. Yeah, Blurst is genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, we're man. not getting funnier than that today. Yeah, it's been a great episode. Thanks for having well, us. Thank you so much. Great to have you in to re- remember our favourite Charles Dickens reference on The Simpsons. Um, which are the two cities? What are they? Do you know? I was going to ask that actually. Do you know the two cities? I don't know. To? That's the extent of what I know about this. Show. I, as far as I remember, was a reference in The Simpsons somewhere else? Uh, probably. I'm guessing New York and London. Uh, one is correct. Oh, okay. Ooh. New York and uh, Hackney, Minnesota. <laughs> now both are incorrect. Okay, I'm going to go London and Birmingham. Oh, no, I'm afraid it is London and Paris. Ah, we uh, Paris. Because it is set during the lead up to and then during the time of the French Revolution. Ah, um. So, oh, we Paris. so in uh, the uh, in the I'll chop your bloody head off. <laughs> that that was that time, wasn't it? Fair bit of that will happen in yeah. this book. Bit of slicey. So in the book cheat universe, the BCU, this is before <laughs> Les Mis. Have you done Les Mis? No, I haven't. God, it is so long in book form. Like I think it's nine hundred pages approximately. Oh, that's not fair. Actually, it's very very it. long. <laughs> it's so long. 
It's funny that there's a, a book that has a lot of head chopping has such a dull name. Tale of Two Cities. I really like the name. Really, that's I think what it's, it is part a of great, it has attracted it's to, a over great time. Name. It's, it's been in my head for a long time. It's a great name, but if it was called something these days, uh, it'd be called <laughs> Tale of Two Headless. Blurst. Just had a little bit of a moment there. Well, trying to think of a second C word. Uh, cab drivers. Good luck. Good luck. Tale of two. Oh my god, it's hard. <laughs> cows. Cows. Cowards. <gasps> cowards. That's Tale pretty of good. Two Tale of two cowards. That's Tale pretty two good. Headless cowards. Tale of two cowards is quite right, semi-apt, I would say. <laughs> One coward maybe in here. I'm looking at Victor Hugo's uh, Les Mis. Is 19? Uh, sorry, 1400 pages in English. Jeez Louise! Whoa. No Which wonder is... they condense the feelings into songs. That is longer, <laughs> much longer than War and Peace there. Wow. Got 175 on War and Peace. Gosh. Well, there you go. Maybe I'll get to it one day. It'll be a nine-part episode. <laughs> uh, so A Tale of Two Cities was written by Charles Dickens in 1859. Unlike a lot of his other work, it is a historical novel. His most famous historical novel. So it's a fictitious story with real elements of history throughout it. The 45-chapter novel was published in 31 weekly installments in Dickens' new literary periodical titled all the year round. So most of his books would do that. He was very ah. famous and very wealthy and very influential in his lifetime, unlike a lot of artists and writers over the years. And, uh, yeah, often things would be published over a couple of years. Smart. Like fan fiction. Does that come out in installments? Doesn't it? I reckon probably. Don't people do it in chapters? I actually haven't read fan fiction <laughs> really. Have I really. Like Home and Away. Like, like exactly. Home and Away. Yeah. Thank you. First, now we can all understand. Or Neighbours, and those are the two cities in Australia. Yeah. Neighbours and Home and Away. <laughs> Byron Bay and Ramsey Street. Uh, Summer Bay. Summer. Oh, no. Sorry. I for, it, it can't be. It has to be fictitious. And yeah. Ra- Ramsey Street, is that, what's, is the suburb Nunna Wadding, or is that just where it's filmed? No, Erinsborough, which is an, anag- am I going to say, anagram of neighbours or neighbourhood or something like that. Wow, I didn't know that. We are learning a lot I today. I learned that wow. recently. Loving that. Yeah, that one's going to, I reckon a few people have just driven off the road. <laughs> and I imagine that probably happens with most book cheats. You have a few fatalities. Yeah, well, people hate the fact that much. <laughs> they drive off the road. <laughs> I'd no. better not listen to this and I'm not <laughs> pushing stop. Yeah. But where's the pause button? That's it. <laughs> this cliff will pause this podcast. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. Let's stop with all this sadness and get to the head chopping. Oh, choppy chop chop. Uh, Dickens was extremely famous and successful in his lifetime. I've already said that out loud, but I had written it down, so I better say it out loud. Otherwise, what a waste of my afternoon, writing that down for nothing. Yeah, well, that's not fair on you. Thank you. A Tale of Two Cities is his best-selling book and is often mentioned as the single best-selling novel of all time. Often mentioned. Well, some estimate it has sold 200 million copies. Whoa. Which would by far and above make it the biggest single-selling book, although that figure is disputed. But I can confirm that it has sold at least one copy <laughs> to me. So you, you buy them all. Yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. say 200 million copies? 200 million copies, yeah. That... But then a professor has come out and said that that is, was an erroneous claim once put on Wikipedia and that it's become a cycle uh... that a bunch of other articles have referenced that. Yeah. And now Wikipedia references these articles that referenced it. Right. Uh... And now we all accept it for selling 200 million copies, but it's, it is disputed That's by this professor. That's amazing. Wow. But I'm not actually sure. 
It's that's so many copies if possible. I love, by the way, I love the cover art on this version. Yes, I'll put a sick. photo up of this. That'd be a great wall poster. It is very, as very nice. As opposed to other kinds of posters. <laughs> <laughs> Floor poster. You wouldn't want to walk on that. It looks too good for the fall. Yeah. This is suggested by a few people. People can suggest a book by clicking a link in the description of this episode. And it's suggested by Kate McRae from Yarrawonga, Alex from Indianapolis, Malik from Melbourne, John Vang from St. Paul, Minnesota, oh, and Kevin Schofield from San Jose, California. All of those fantastic. Yarrawonga so used to have a, a, a rock and roll festival called Rockalonga at Yarrawonga. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's really good. thought of the Why title first. Yeah. <laughs> How can we use this? They were like, people will come. <laughs> we just got it. Like, there's a marketing genius sitting up at bed one night. Honey, wake We're up moving and... to Yarrawonga. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever go? No, but I used to, well, it's still sort of, uh, sometimes spend a bit of time in country Victoria. So on country, you know, win TV, the country channels would yeah. just oh, yeah. advertise it a lot. Rocker longer at Yarrawonga. <laughs> <laughs> along, that was along as, uh, with Wobby's World. Oh, whip, whip. What? That weird noise that that would make yeah. in a commercial. I drove past Wobby's World recently. Fire engines, <laughs> helicopters, <laughs> and <it> slides. <laughs> Welcome to Wobby's World. Does it still exist? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'd love That's to go cool. to Wobby's World. <laughs> Wobby's World. We, we drove past it on the way to Phillip Island. We were like, what ah. is this place? <laughs> Still going. I'm guessing there's just some guy, Wobby, <laughs> who started building little things in his backyard. I loved... My name's Wobby. <laughs> One of them was like, uh, ride the tram. You can do that anywhere in Melbourne. <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, but not Wobby's twam. Wobby's twam. Whoop, <laughs> <laughs> whoop. Wobby. I never even real. I like. I always thought that was funny, but I don't think I realised how funny the name Wobby is. <laughs> we come Who's, to Wobby's world. I've never heard the name Wobby before outside of that context. Who's Wobby? Is it someone who can't pronounce his R's? Oh, maybe it was named like um, like in like the T. S. Eliot book, world. like the um, like Jellicle for Jellicle cats. That's oh. because he T. S. Eliot wrote it for his knee. Who and she couldn't say dear little cat, so she said jellicle cats, oh. and she couldn't say poor little dog, so she said pollicle dogs. So those are what those words mean. It's oh. just wasn't, wasn't a, that what that niece has done to the world? You know? I know so many people losing their minds saying what is a jellicle, trying desperately to make sense of what Taylor Swift is doing on screen. <laughs> All of them. I'm not trying to single her out. She was she was great, but um. <laughs> I don't know any of the other actors' names. Jason Derulo. Oh. He was in that. Did he say his name in it? Probably. No, but, he didn't. Oh. They both put on accents. I didn't think they did a bad job. That's great. Really? I haven't. I don't think I'll ever see it, but it sounds like a fun thing. Was yeah. ha- Helen Mirren was also in it, right? Jeez, yeah, it was very... an all-star cast. Oh, at one point, Wasn't she Idris puts... Elba? Yes. He's cool. I would yeah. recommend seeing it. There is a showing on at the Astor. I think they're doing like a midnight screening or something. If you want to see it on the biggest screen... I would always I would recommend seeing cats on the biggest screen possible. Okay. Most places, if not all, have already stopped showing it mere weeks after it opened. Um, it was down to like one viewing a day a couple of weeks it's after just, it was opened. It just went straight oh. from flop to cult hit, right? Um, it's like the cat. It's the room, basically. Yeah, but I people I watch it because it's bad. It's the room it's... that better cost one hundred and fifty million dollars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How much did the room cost? Did they ever get a final figure on that? Because I, I know it was millions. You spent like I think some people got five million dollars. There was a do go on episode about it. Yeah, that's I right. I can't remember. I think it was something like five million dollars, and then people were very wow. suspicious as to where he got the money. From. Yeah, he never told anyone. Have you ever done a T.S. Eliot on here? 
No, I haven't. No, I don't do much poetry, I will say. Right. It's only uh, plays and novels. So far. So far. I suppose I could do... I've, I've been thinking of doing um, Greek verse. Oh, yeah. The Iliad or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. We're Which... all the chorus. <laughs> there are no such things as small parts. <laughs> just small actors, guys. You're, I just... in, you're in the chorus. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, that's what I remember from doing like plays and studying plays of the all the Greek stuff. It's like, okay, so the chorus is what you are thinking. I'm like, is it now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Took the words right to... out of my mouth, Sophocles. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about a tale of two cities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah. London and Paris are those uh, cities we're talking about. Uh, the book... Does it normally take this? Sorry. Does it normally take this long to get into it? I rem- I don't think it normally does. Do you bounce back before like T. S. Eliot and stuff before? Yeah, Do you well, get we were a talking about all. Uh, it was all literary based stuff. Right. I reckon that's fine. It's like doing a mental write off for tax, but for your work. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Cass and I did a primates recently about Star Wars, based around. There's a character that's a, a monkey lizard in um, in the Mandalorian, and a few people were annoyed that it wasn't monkey enough. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> we did monkey around though, so technically yes. fine. That's how you you got him on a technicality. I didn't. I yeah. forget. We were monkeying about. Uh-huh. But there's that, a monkey lizard. That's very <laughs> strange that people have these. You never know that you have a high bar for that kind of thing until <laughs> it happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, not monkey enough for me, mate. So, so as long as we've been talking literally. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're literally talking. This counts. <laughs> Well, all right, let me tell you about this book that's apparently sold 200 million copies. And you can tell me at the end of this whether you think it deserves that. Mm. Uh, the book is split into three parts told by an unnamed narrator. Today we will cover books one and two, and hopefully you can join me next time for book three. I would love to. In a couple of weeks' time. Mm-hmm. You're already committed Assuming, to that? What I'm, if you hate this? You might hate it. Yeah, but that's fun. I think sometimes <laughs> it's more fun if it's bad. We're artists. Hate fuels us. Okay, great. Well, you can hate this if you like. Uh, book <laughs> book one is called Recalled to Life. Oh. oh that's a hot start. That's a hot that's, title, right? That's great because it's like, remember when? You're like, what? Rec- and then, I don't what- even know you. Stop. <laughs> what I enjoy about this is every chapter is named. You know how <gasps> these days I don't think that people, you just have chapter four or chapter five. What is I this, an episode of Frasier? <laughs> <laughs> There's a... Have I'm, you done a book cheat on Fla- Frasier? There's a lot of there's a lot of title cards on the show. I think it counts. That's enough. Uh, I don't think that that was uh, booky enough for me, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is called "Recalled to Life," and uh, it opens with one of the most famous lines in the English lang- language. Uh, language. <laughs> <laughs> Say it with me now. Language. I love Woo! how you um you you sort of spoke an example of the English language. <laughs> Oh, recall to life. I don't <laughs> don't feel that good after that. Uh, say it with me. It was the best of times. It was the worst, worst of, of times. times. I didn't know what we're doing there. <laughs> this is it's actually that's only a very small part of what is probably the longest opening sentence in. Oh my god! Oh. Do the whole sentence. It I've, goes longer. Got, oh, it, oh, do you want to hear it? Yes. Yeah. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the sorry. These are all separated by commas. Okay. There's yeah. so many commas here. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period. 
period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Oh my God, Charles. It's not as catchy as the opening bit that we all know, is it? I think it's a, it's a lot going on there. Um, he says the same thing 50 times. <laughs> And I know why people cull it to the first one. <laughs> yeah. He he summarizes it. He's got his contention straight up. And then he forgot about his word count. <laughs> Someone said, okay, you need to summarize the entire thing. Yeah. Right, he, he was like, what? Victor Hugo has published a 1,400-page book. Well, I'm going to have to catch up to that. I'll <laughs> well, expand every idea ten times. Well, if he, re- if, he, uh, if he released a chapter at a time, maybe he wrote the first chapter and was like... Not meaty. Yeah, oh God. Where's the beef? That's only two pages. <laughs> Where isn't the beef? Yeah, well, yeah. now we know. So the book opens in 1775, and that's, this sentence tells us that the society is split into two. The best of times for the rich and the worst of times for everyone else. Lots of disparity. Where is the beef? The poor... Where isn't the beef the rich who have beef all around? Too much beef. Yeah. yeah. Too much beef. Uh, Dickens wrote the book in 1859 and writes that at the time he's writing, it's very similar to his current day where the rich have a lot and everyone else doesn't have so much. That's basically what that sentence is saying. Uh, the two cities that the title refers to, as we've already talked about, are London and Paris. And this opening chapter sets up what is happening in the two cities at the time. The cities are similar in that they are both ruled by kings. In England, it's George III on the throne. And in France, Louis XVI is in charge. In England, society is fascinated and concerned by supernatural and spiritual occurrences, including the Cock Lane Ghost. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm sure you've heard of the Cock Lane Ghost. I uh, haven't, but I really neither want have I, neither yeah. have I. But I was, I was into it. <laughs> Cockline ghost. So they're fascinated with a uh, uh, sort of spiritual stuff in Paris. Less time to be concerned about that because inflation is out of control. The rich are doing nothing for the poor, and unknown to them at the time, everything is building towards the revolution and the erection of the guillotine, aka guillotine, aka the head chopper, the head chopper, the original slap chop. <laughs> Well, you do not want to be on the receiving end of that slap chop. No. And that, that's chapter one. So it basically sets up what's happening historically in that time. But it's marching towards revolution. And that's just happening in the background of this whole story. So that's the historical context set up for us. The real story begins in the following chapter on a mail coach travelling from London to Dover. Uh, Dover being on the coast of England. Three strangers travel together through the night, not talking or even exchanging pleasantries as they are all very scared as robberies and violence are rife in London at the time. Highwaymen who rob coaches at gunpoint are very common and they all sort of suspect each other as being an inside man for these robbers. Because uh, mm. you, you've probably got a bit of money if you're wealthy enough to be travelling on this coach. So you're yep. a bit worried that at any moment someone's going to pull a gun out, probably shoot you and take all of your riches. Wow. Okay. I don't think I'm going to be able to forget that this was released chapter at a time. So the first the first chapter he released was essentially here's the homework. Yeah, it, honestly, it is like three pages of not the, you know a bit of uh, okay yeah here's the background for you. The story begins in seven days' time. So, oh, so he says it. Oh yeah yeah. So, so this if it was, was released one chapter at a time. This was written in eighteen fifty something. Fifty nine and set in uh, seventeen eighty five. I think I said seventeen eighty five. Yeah, right. seventeen seventy five. So sorry. 1775, but the book actually covers nearly two decades by the time it's over. So the coach that they're travelling on uh, gets to a steep hill and they have to get out and walk alongside it to allow the horses to make it up the steep incline. It's a very exciting chapter as you think something is about to happen the whole time. It would be a great opening scene for 
an action movie. Mm. Yeah. It sounds tense. It's very suspenseful. There's gloom. There's darkness. They're all, no one's talking to each other, but they're all sort of like tapping on things. Like it's time. And you just think that someone's going to pull out a massive shotgun or something. Just as the passengers get back inside the cabin after getting uh, on top of the hill, the driver hears a horse approaching in the darkness and the guard on board cocks his blunderbuss. The man on horseback asks if he has come across the Dover mail cart as he wants to speak to a passenger on board, a certain Mr. Jarvis Laurie. Oh, fantastic name. Oh, Hugh's granddad. I love that. (laughs) Hugh's granddad. Great granddad, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Please get it right. (laughs) Uh, The man on horseback's name is Jerry. Someone else's granddad, imagine. <laughs> I imagine. And after Laurie identifies himself, he says, yes, I am here. Uh, Jerry passes a note to Laurie, who explains to the still-armed and extremely suspicious guard that he works for Telson's bank and is heading to Paris for a bit of business. Ooh. So Jarvis Laurie reads the note out loud that Jerry just passed to him, and all it says is, wait at Dover for Mademoiselle. So wait for the lady at Dover. Jarvis Laurie tells the messenger Jerry to send back a rather cryptic message and all it says is, recalled to life. That's his response to the message. Jerry is very confused (laughs) and he rides off, stops at the pub on the way back and he's actually thinking to himself, what the hell does that mean? Recalled to life, what are you talking about? And I imagine the reader, as I was, is also going, what does that mean? The whole book's called. The chapter, part one is called, recalled to life. What does this mean? Yeah, no, good hook. In the next chapter, Jarvis Laurie, who is about 60 years old, this is the guy that works for the bank that's on his way to Paris, he continues on to the coach and he has dreams where he's sort of uh, tra- uh, in and out of consciousness where he sees a man and he tells the man that he's been recalled to life. In the dream, he's uh, sent to dig a man out of a grave who's been buried alive for 18 years. So it's all very cryptic. It's like, why is he digging a man out of a grave for 18 oh. years? Who's been recalled to life? Okay. What do you reckon? Lots of questions, lots of cues, no A's, but we're in chapter one, so. That's right. Two. Oh, my God, Well, that two. was chapter three. So you, what? That's taken three weeks for you to work out at home if you were reading it week by week. I reckon it, what I would do is probably wait till it's all come out and then just read it together, that's which what is I, what you did, actually. I waited 150 years. <laughs> just in case there was another bit coming out. Yeah. You're a binge reader. They discovered so. another bit. <laughs> Uh, Laurie gets to Dover and meets the young lady that the letter spoke of. The woman's name is Lucy Manette. Young and very beautiful, Laurie tells her that her father, Dr. Alexander Manette, was one of his clients at the bank. Lucy is sad to hear about this because she reflects on her father, who is, quote, so long dead. Mm. And her mother also died at only two years old, so she's grown up without parents. And she thinks that they have to travel to Paris together because her dad had some business assets that he'd left behind 18 years ago when he disappeared. And she's going over to sort of collect the assets with the guy from the bank. But Laurie reveals at this point that the reason he's asked her to travel to Paris with him is because her father is, in fact, not dead. He was imprisoned at the Bastille prison for 18 years in Paris but has been released recently and Laurie has been invited over to identify the doctor and bring him back to England. And uh, now the father, Dr. Manette, is staying at one of his old servants' houses in Paris. Laurie explains to Lucy that she is to come along to, quote, restore him to life, love, duty, rest and comfort. Lucy is shocked and absolutely overwhelmed by the news and is worried that after all these years, the man that was her father will be nothing but a ghost after spending 18 years 
in a famously horrific prison. Oh. That's a fair fear. Yeah, she's not that excited that her dad's alive. Yeah, I think it's a bit like, oh, God, how his last near two decades must have been pretty hard. Yeah. How old is she? She's in her sort of uh, early 20s. Yeah, so being like, well, all the time it took me to become a person, he has had to uh, go backwards. Yeah, and like probably doesn't have real proper memories of him. I wonder if he's the ghost of Cock Lane. (gasps) He could be the Cock Lane ghost. (laughs) Wow. Well, we'll find out. In Chapter 5, Laurie and Lucy travel to Paris, which is still under the grip of uh, Louis XVI, to the extremely poor suburb of saint Ant. Get this right, Saint Antone. The people here are starving, and the story shifts to a wine shop, in front of which a cask bursts as it falls onto the street, and people come running to scoop it up and drink it with their hands, or dip in rags, which they then wring dry into their mouths, and they even drip it into babies' mouths. That's how desperately poor these people are. They're like free wine, and people come running. Is that like oh, some nourishment, or is that just like we haven't added? Had a good drop for a while. I think it's a bit of both, yeah. Yeah, right. Something that tastes tastes all right. Yeah. Bit of liquor. Can't not many yeah. people can afford it. Honestly, not to me, there's nothing that tastes better than wine wrung out of a rag. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> How? Actually, the only way I drink it is hanky anymore. wine. Yeah. <laughs> Dip it in the hanky. Oh yeah. Wring oh. it into my mouth. Oh. I prefer flannel wine. I feel like it uh, really retains the oh, wine yeah. more, and it's a much more satisfying ring. <laughs> oh, you got to really ring yeah, it. Yeah, like. You get it all out. But, but please, I, I couldn't drink any more. Uh, let, let your baby have the rest. <laughs> <laughs> that would be impolite. Let uh, the baby suck on the wine flannel. <laughs> yeah. The baby's had an entire flannel to itself. <laughs> it's a different oh, time. No. It's a different time. It really was. They probably didn't know that babies don't like red back then. They're white. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> you don't like red wine until you lose all your baby teeth. Everyone knows that yeah. now, but the science wasn't there. No. You might not have even said it was red wine. I've just painted a real vivid picture in my mind. Well, it is. Well, let me tell you, because everyone's hands and faces are stained red after this, much like how they will be when the revolution kicks off in just a few years' oh, time. a little call forward. Symbolism there. Oh, this book, this book. Lot of two in this book. Oh, please what? do more. <laughs> this book is seems to be only parallel so far. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot of that. All I have seen with my ears so far, parallels. Two cities, good and bad. Good and bad in 20 other words. Oh, my goodness. London, so many. Paris, tension. Are you going to rob me? Am I rich? Who's rich from what? Ah, oh, we're two people. We've split off. I found another two person. It's all in twos. Ah. But maybe that's just everything in the world. One of my favorite things to do is um, art analysis because every metaphor applies to everything. <laughs> I see. Could I have an example, please? Yeah. Um, what's something? What's the thing you like? Hats. You like hats? <laughs> the yeah, you, you wear a lot of hats. I just like to wear hats. Well, it's yeah. mainly because of my fair skin, okay. and I live. We live under an ozone hole. Yes. Now, these are practical reasons. Okay. Well, all right. Let me think of something I'm more passionate about. No, 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 no. Are you happy with hats? Well, okay, you've, great. You've got, you've got your hat. Yes. But now, what is something that you like to do as a pastime? Uh, I like to go for a walk. <laughs> you like golf? Golf. Go- well, golf? You yeah. like golf? Does that help as an no. activity? Well, I mean, I play, I play it about once a year. Dave but you doesn't love know it. a lot about it. But me. you love it. What's something I do more than once a year? <laughs> I like to go to the footy. Okay, go into the footy. Um, 
let's think of hats and football. Let's okay. link these two. So football is a game of back and forth, right? Nothing really happens. It not to say it's not an important game. It is. It's wonderful to watch. But everything you are seeing <laughs> I'm is not offended. I know. I know it's frivolous. <laughs> oh, everything fun is. Everything you see within football is contained within its own unit. As you are in the stadium, you're looking down. Even if you're in the game, it's a contained thing. Much like the hat. And it's football you find, it's football something you find good and worth protecting or worth viewing. And then you put a hat on your head. That's something you use to contain your mind, yourself, protect yourself. Much like a football stadium. Much like a football stadium. <laughs> Wow. wow. It really was the best of times and the worst of times. And, Dave, we should tell the listeners that Cass and I didn't rehearse that. She came up with that on and the I, spot. I'm really, that I, I must apologise. I tried to derail by throwing in golf. What was I thinking? I'm so sorry. God, that was stupid. Oh, what, you don't like golf? Read from the script. <laughs> All right. So we're going back to the script. We're uh, <laughs> in a wine shop now in uh, this very poor suburb of Paris. It's owned by two of our other main characters, a married couple, about 30 years old, Monsieur or Monsieur and Madame Defarge. Ooh, that's oh, that's a fun name. Defarge. Mon- yeah, that, is that the word that looks like mons- monsepsois? Yes. That's a hard word to say. Mm, and I fell for it, I must say, yeah. just then. And I rehearsed it in my mind. And then you'd say correctly it is... Monsieur. Monsieur, yeah. Monsieur. Yeah, I've, I've, I've made a fool of myself a few times with that one. Monsoir? Monsoir, huh? <laughs> Bonsoir, bonsoir. It sounds French, Monsoir. It does. Monsieur, Monsieur. and Madame Defarge. Uh, the two English characters, Fantastic. Uh, Jarvis Laurie and Lucy Manette, enter the shop, but in typical French fashion, are at first ignored. Oh, classic French fashion. And I say that because it happened to me in Paris and I loved it. I felt part of it. <laughs> I was in a, a comic book shop trying to buy a Tintin poster. Ah, bon bon. And uh, the lady ignored me for a good five minutes. And I, she was dealing with other customers. I clearly didn't speak French. So. Right. I, enjoy, I was like, thank you. This is, this is great, great experience. Thank I you. I heard that it's just a cultural difference. Like, what, like in Australia, if you go into a store, the, shop, like the customer is the shop owner greets you and asks if you want any help. But in France, you're meant to greet the, cu- the shop owner. Right. I was definitely greeting. Oh, uh, they were just okay. blanking full, you. Full, full ignore. Because <laughs> I wanted to get... I wanted to get... Uh, g'day. Uh, g'day over uh, here. Uh, Better help, please. Oi. 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 What's the boy over there? Garçon. Oi. Garçon. Eh. Oi. Monsieur. Monsieur. Oi, garçon. Oi, garçon over here, mate. This guy's rude as buggery. So Defarge ignores them and instead speaks to two other customers and they all refer to each other as Jacques, which is code to identify yourself as a revolutionary at the time. Oh. Hello, Jacques. Bit of a wink, wink. And they'd say, hello, Jacques. And you'd know that you too want to overthrow the monarchy. You right. get it? Confusing if your name is Jacques <laughs> and you are a staunch monarchist. Very, very confusing. I was like, is there a phrase uh, in uh, the drug world, chasing? Are you chasing... I think it maybe it was a '90s thing or something. I when I was a kid, a family friend uh, went. Her her boyfriend was a guy called Jason, and they were out one night. And a guy went up to him and said, "You Jason?" And he goes, "Yes, I am." Oh no! <laughs> and it was really confusing. <laughs> Let's say, what do you want to buy? Um, Wait, what? what? Are you looking for a different Jason? And apparently, it was quite a lot of back and forth before they both figured out what was going on. 
what what do you mean? I'm yeah, I'm Jason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you want? What do you need? What do you need? <laughs> I love that so much. English is beautiful. So the revolution hasn't kicked off yet, but people are plotting and planning, and Defarge's wine shop is like a base where these Jacques meet. So they are, yeah, they meet up there and they discuss their plans. Eventually, uh, Defarge does speak to Laurie and he takes Laurie and Lucy upstairs to see the recently released doctor that he's been looking after. So they go upstairs and they find Dr. Manette, a white-haired old man sitting at a bench making shoes. He doesn't break from his task when they walk in, even when they start to speak to him. In the mind of the old man, he's still in prison and when asked for his name, he simply responds, 105 North Tower the cell in which he was kept for nearly two decades. The man has been clearly affected mentally by his incarceration and he's just feverishly making shoes. Uh. It's sort of like his repetitive task. But then Lucy steps forward to see her father for the first time in 18 years and she looks almost familiar to him. He notices her hair is the same colour as the two golden strands that he kept tied in a cloth around his neck, his wife's hair that he had to beg to be able to keep in the prison. Lucy speaks to him and her voice reminds him of his wife and the old man becomes confused and starts to weep and Lucy holds him. Beautiful oh, scene. Beautiful. That's nice. Uh, Jarvis, Laurie and Lucy are able to take the doctor back to England, but Laurie ponders if the man has truly been recalled to life, if there's any life left. And thus ends book the first. Wow. Oh. That's so. That's a third of the novel. So no, far. it actually is, and that's probably only about twenty percent of it. Right. Oh, okay. Book it's, one. Book book the first is definitely. It's only six chapters. I think book two, uh, book two is about twenty or something. Come on, so Charles. Uh, keep it consistent, no, mate. No, I see that he did a limited run to see if it would float because he was yep. doing a, a weekly release. It's like your pilot season. Absolutely. Yeah. He released the pilot, which was very brave. It was just homework. <laughs> I'm guessing he got commissioned or paid first. Yeah. Luckily, he. They were like, "All right, you had some previous hits. We're willing to bankroll you a few more chapters, but yeah. pick up the pace, mate." He hadn't yep. thought of a story yet. <laughs> It's like, oh, so... He knows the setting. Yeah, it's somewhere in Paris. Yeah, uh, London. There are two cities. Um, It was a good time and bad time. And, you know, like, it was was spring, but it was also winter. Um, Like, good stuff was happening, bad stuff was happening. Charles, yeah, no, it's... I'm I'm not finished. Um, (laughs) um, It was good and bad, and two things can happen at the same time. And it's like today, um, actually. Like, today is still good and bad, like, as I'm writing this. Um, chapter two will come next week. All right, Charles, you are so lucky that I loved the Pickwick papers. Otherwise, <laughs> you would be straight out of my office right now. Hey, team, just Dave here dropping in to tell you that this week's episode of Book Cheat is brought to you by Audible. Now, if you're not familiar, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, if you're a member, like I am, you'll get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. The best part is you can download titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere, on holidays, on the plane, at the gym, whilst you're driving, whilst you go to sleep. I know a lot of people love to listen to audiobooks as they go to sleep. The app is free and can be installed on your smartphone, your tablets, all that sort of stuff, and you can listen across devices without losing your spot. It's got a bookmark on there, basically. I love it. Now, I always have a suggestion for something to check out on Audible. And if you can't wait for me to cover a part two of A Tale of Two Cities, well, you can get ahead of me if you like. You could check out A Tale of Two Cities, the Dickens Collection, an Audible exclusive series narrated by Simon Callow. 15 hours. I mean, the next episode is not going to come out for two weeks. So you could easily get ahead of me and uh, check out A Tale of Two Cities on Audible. 
Or if you're like, oh, Dave, I want to wait for you. Well, you could check out another Charles Dickens classic. They've got Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Great Expectations, Hard Times. They're all there. And you can check them out now on Audible. So if you want to get started with the free 30-day trial where you get your first audiobook for free, all you have to do is visit audible.com slash bookcheat or text bookcheat to 500-500. One more time, visit audible.com slash bookcheat or text bookcheat to 500-500. Thanks, Audible. Now back to A Tale of Two Cities. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that that's uh, that's some of the main characters we've met there. There's quite a few in here, and I actually won't mention all of them in here for, just to avoid confusing everyone because there are some minor. There's some minor really characters. I'm sticking to the main main ones. I've already probably. Oh, can we recap? Let's, on them? That's so a we, good recap. Okay. We have Jarvis. Jarvis Laurie, who's the bank manager. Yep. Uh, yeah. He was taking over the young woman to who yeah, Lucy fit, Manette, who met her yeah. dad, the white-haired Doctor Manette. So that's Doctor Manette. The doctor. He's a shoe doctor now. Shoe doctor. Yes, yeah. that's right. He's cobbling away. <laughs> and then at the wine shop, we have Madame and Monsieur Defarge. Yeah, and they're both Jacques. They're both Jacques. Yeah, they're deep into the secret revolution. They're right. hoping that something will kick off. Hello. No, that's that was later. <laughs> Do you think that the shoe mending is a metaphor for him trying to fix his soul? Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah. Charles Dickens is a deeply religious man. That's good. That's I hadn't thought of that. I I would put that uh, if you're in, listening to this, put that in your essay, Year Twelve students. He's and desperately trying to repair his soul. That's and so good. shoes are something that comes and in tongue. twos. <laughs> the poor man had a busted tongue, and his laces and aglets don't even fucking talk about. <laughs> don't mention them. Don't worry about those. But they the some soul. of the things you're not going to delve into. I won't be mentioning the problems no. with his eyelets. <laughs> no, I mean there's no time, but there is several chapters devoted to that. Does it talk about the kind of shoe? Is it a woman's pump? I think I believe when they first go in there, he is making a woman's shoe. Yeah, when they're talking to the him. Pumps yeah. are like a high heel, right? Yep, it's a high I heel. I always with nothing picture else. Reebok pumps. Oh well, that. Do you remember Reebok? Like, no. Are they still around? Maybe are they're the ones where you inflate? Yeah, <laughs> there's a button for the tongue, and it goes. <laughs> yeah, there Puff were Reebok pumps when I was in primary school. There were Reebok pumps, and these were revolutionising footwear. Reebok pumps. You just put your foot in, then you pump until it like it fills up around your foot and the other one were so if you if you haven't pumped it does it just not fit yeah you'd your foot would just slip out of it probably <laughs> so it's so they made a leaky shoe and they were like wait I'm, wait I'm maybe this it's... isn't a glitch it's a feature gets <laughs> yeah. inside the walls or sort of like like that maybe the air could be pushed in in between the walls of the shoe there was another one called the i forget what brand it was but maybe like puma discs and you'd instead of laces you'd have a disc that you'd turn and that would tighten the what shoe love fun shoe tech. Yeah. Never heard of that, but I like it. The 90s was a different so time. It's sort of like DJing your own shoe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we hadn't we hadn't gotten to apps yet, so this is what people put yeah. their time into. Basketball was big. Oh, <laughs> it was so big in the 90s in Australia. And then it went away. Yeah. But now it's back. Slam dunk. Yeah. Yeah. I watched Nothing some today. <laughs> I'm back in. You're back so, in. Some NBA or NBL? I watched some NBA today, but there were a lot of NBL ads <laughs> in the breaks because it's on Australian TV. 
So NBL is the Aussie league. So yeah. they're trying to get you to be like, hey, you've seen how they do it over there. See how we do it. And the the commentator on the ad is like a pretty famous footy commentator. And he's commentating it like it's the footy. He's like, and it's so funny. It's almost like he commentated knowing it was going to be used for the ad. It finishes with, whoa, that's a lot of wow this year in the NBL season. <laughs> 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 but what, what are you talking about? All right, guys, I've only got time to do this once, so I'm going to put a lot of energy in. Yeah, yeah amazing stuff. That's a lot of wow. Uh, did it make you want to watch a lot of wow? Or well, it's it's funny when like uh, like in because my the sport I follow the most is AFL, and that's the top level of Australian rules football in the world. It, it's kind of weird watching a lower level uh, from another country, like Australia's basketball. I think it's like an okay comp. Like it's probably a top 10 comp or something maybe in the world. Maybe top 20. But, you know, the NBA is also on. So, and there's Australia. And is that also, that. is the NBA in the top 20? NBA is in the top, I think even top five. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, they've really come a long way. <laughs> I'll occasionally watch the A-League soccer, Australian soccer, and it's, you know, it's a bit of fun. But, yeah, it is funny. Like it's clearly a, a different world from Europe. What's the European stuff? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, what is this? Was this Dickensian stuff? Oh well, we're going to book. Well, the it's second. kind of it's the tale of two basketball leagues. Yes, yeah. that's right. The best of times, NBA. <laughs> worst of times, sorry to say, yes, NBL. That's right. I feel a bit feel a bit bad now. <laughs> no, NBL, great great league. I to be honest, I'm just still bitter that um, the Southeast Melbourne Magic are defunct now. And really? have been for about 20 years. I have to say slam dunk defunct. <laughs> yeah. I just have to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, that's good. Uh, Melbourne, what do they call Melbourne Magic? Southeast Melbourne Magic. Southeast Melbourne Magic. That yeah. that name goes with slam dunk defunct. Yeah, but sure. I lo- Southeast, how specific? Is it, was there a, just an east and a south as well? Uh, there were the, yeah, there was a south, southern, well, that, there was two teams merged, the Southern Saints and the Eastern Spectres. Oh, okay. okay. All right, that makes merged sense. Merged together like, to For me, it would be funny if it, like the Northwestern Taipans or something. It just sounds funny. Yeah. There is a Taipans in the NBL. Oh. The cans type hands. Cans type hands. The cans type hands. Feel it really feels like we're having a halftime break in between chapter and between. Yeah, we are. All right. Well, okay. All right. All right. We're gonna go back now. We're gonna. That go was back. the halftime entertainment. Yeah, exactly. That was a little dog on a trampoline <laughs> jumping through a fiery hoop. Yeah. They really. The NBA really has those weird they halftime really? entertainment things. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's but, often become people come out and they stack nineteen chairs on top of them, and then someone does a handstand with one hand on top of it. But surely you've come because you like basketball. Yeah. Why do you care? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess for the kids. Yeah, it's for the Why'd kids. Why'd you bring the kids? <laughs> the tickets were expensive. Hey, a lot of questions that I don't have answers to. <laughs> That's all right. It's not on you. I'm sorry. What I... happens at halftime at the NBL? Do we know? Um, <laughs> they come out and sell hot a dogs. smaller dog. <laughs> <laughs> the hoop's just really hot. It's not yeah. on fire. Yeah, yeah, it's a real warm hoop. <laughs> do they let it? Do they let you come onto the onto the court and just have a go? Yeah, have a shot. Well, that's the uh, AFL's. Basic is what it is. It's yeah. little kids having a go in the but little that, league. That's good. It's like you like football. Well, we'll give you more football. Yeah. This time it's kids. So you have it's so that um, for international listeners, it's so that you can tell how good the football players really are. Because <laughs> yeah. oftentimes you're like, I can do that. Then you see kids just not nailing it. You're like, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> That'd probably be. It me. is actually harder. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually to hard. be a professional sports person than <laughs> I thought. I thought I'd just have a go. Yeah, it's it's, for, it's your professional reference point. That's why they get the kids out. <laughs> <laughs> They've come a long way. The these kids big get men. nothing out the, of it. These are your tributes. Look at them. They <laughs> suck. 
statistically, none of these kids will make it. So, <laughs> and I mean to adulthood. Oh, no. Oh, that's, uh, that's grim. When, when Climate this... change is a very serious <laughs> issue. Oh, okay. No, yeah, that actually checks out tragically. <laughs> yeah. They're just trying to shine a light, you know. Good on them. Book the second. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I don't know if you've mentioned it yet, but that is how he names them. You're not just being fancy with your oh, language. Oh, sorry, yeah, no, that's not me. That's him being fancy. That's that is, Dickensian. That is Dickensian. Absolutely right there. Book the second is titled The Golden Thread. Right. He's... Ooh, like the hair? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Is it the hair? I'm trying to remember what that actually... We've already come across the hair, the golden thread. Maybe you can see. I can't actually remember where that would actually what that means. Maybe it's something. Is it some sort of a theme that threads through the whole chapter, and it's golden? Is it gold? Is there gold in this? <laughs> yeah. Is there oh, golden thread? That's right. Sorry, someone. Actually, there is a bit of knitting in this. Everyone Even who's after that. talking, <laughs> they're always holding a golden thread. <laughs> Whoever holds the golden thread may talk. <laughs> Look at Charles, the talky stick. Dickens does not mention this until the third book. <laughs> he retcons everything in book three. Yeah, he's like, oh, don't worry about that. And you'll understand why that was important because well, I never mentioned this guy, but there was a guy also in that scene and he was playing a golden uh, string banjo. That's yeah. my favourite uh, thing with a murder mystery where you're like the whole time, who is it, who is it? And then they just introduce a new character that you had no idea about. It was her all along. That and makes me like, put that in the bin. That yeah. it's and if it's on TV, the whole TV <laughs> goes in the bin. It's like, Poirot, how have you solved this? So you didn't even know this person existed. Yeah. Uh, my little Gracels. <laughs> He's done it again. Monsoir. <laughs> Monsoir. Poirot. Uh, all right, so this takes place five years later, and the year is now 1780. A man named Charles Darnay, a French immigrant, stands on trial for treason in England. Accused of divulging England's military manoeuvres to Louis XVI back in France, basically accused of being a spy. The three people we met in the first book, Jarvis Laurie, the bank man, and Lucy and Dr. Manette are called as witnesses as it turns out that they travelled together from France to England five years earlier. They were on a ship together. Right. So that's why they're invited to the courtroom because they have to give evidence and they're asked about, you've, you've met this man before. Dr. Manette, the one that was making shoes monotonously before, is revealed to have recovered in the five years that have gone oh, past. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Great news. That's right. So he's given up this compulsion. Because he's real... already mended his soul. Uh, yes. Put, he and puts his down tongue the soul. is back in his mouth. <laughs> and it is wagging. You cannot yep. shut this guy up. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but when questioned in court, he reveals that he has no collection ever of meeting the man on trial, Darnay, as the time is now a blow to him. He doesn't remember being rescued from Paris. But basically... The time's now a blow to him. A blur to him. Okay. Sorry, sorry. It's I'm the like, worst what, of what times. This yeah. I almost certainly would have said what you heard. So it's now a blur to him because, yeah, he, his main brain wasn't working properly. Right. And yeah. now he's back and it is functioning. He's asked about the guy. He's like, I don't remember even meeting this guy. Do, do you uh, have a picture of this guy in your head? And maybe this is just because uh, it's you telling me, but I'm picturing Dick Van Dyke. Uh, oh, absolutely. Diagnosis murder era. Or probably even modern, any sort of modern day era. White, the shock of white hair was what made me think of him. I reckon he's probably my favourite whitehead actor. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's first up on the stand. Lucy takes the stand to give evidence. That's the uh, daughter. And the young, beautiful woman is noticed by all in the courtroom. In fact, there's a bit of a hush when she first enters. She's a very striking young lady. Wow, especially since she's aged five years. That usually doesn't go well for us. That's right. She's, well, she's got a second bloom, I think. 
That's how <laughs> Jane. That's balloon. that's how Jane Austen described it in one of the books I've done on it. Second in persuasion. Right. She was waiting for her second bloom. Okay, well, and it second nev- puberty. Yeah, some, yeah. Of, some of them never came for a second bloom. Well, I don't. Oh. I think I've only had the one. Do I have another one up my sleeve? Hopefully, it comes for you. I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got our fingers crossed for you. <laughs> So she paints the accused, uh, this Charles Darnay, this Frenchman, in a good light by saying that he helped her father when he was sick on the ship. Everyone's like, oh, this guy's all right. He must be all right. But then she accidentally puts him in it when she also says that the man made a throwaway comment against King George III. Uh, and why? everyone's like, why would she, a throwaway comment? Hang on, what? Oh, uh, also, yeah, he also had a little spy kit yeah. <laughs> and a yeah. magnifying glass. And everyone's like, oh, no. So, Aren't you just meant to tell the truth in that case, though? Did she do anything wrong? Uh, dep- well, I guess it had to come up. If yeah. she was, if she was, she's like, you're, you're excused from the stand. Like, oh, I, should I say that he, there was a throwaway line that he hated the king? <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that's important. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the prosecution's lead witness is a man named John Barsard, which I'm sure is supposed to sound like Barsard. Ah. Because he's an unscrupulous character. And whilst being cross-examined by... Darnay's defence attorney, he's clearly making up a lot of stuff about the accused and claims that he uh, he would recognise Darnay anywhere. He's like, I saw him be a bad guy. I'd recognise that man anywhere. Pointing to the wrong guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't like this bar of sard. They win the case and discredit Barsard's claim when one of the defence attorneys, uh, himself an unscrupulous character that we'll talk about in a minute, a certain Sidney Carton, gets the witness to admit that Carton himself looks a lot like the accused. So he goes, I would recognise that man anywhere. And they say, well, let me get my lawyer colleague here to stand up. And then the whole courtroom goes, oh, holy shit. They look a lot alike. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, well, he looked a bit like that guy as well. And the whole case unravels. <laughs> no one no one put their brains in that morning, did they? No, it's so good. I was like, oh, no. And then everyone's like, well... You can't be that certain, can you? Because this guy looks like that guy. That's fun. Other people look like other people. Case closed. (laughs) Exactly. And from that, Darnay is acquitted by the jury. Ah. So he gets off the treason charges, which he wasn't being treasonous. We do know from the narrator that this bastard is is a bastard. Okay, that's good. I love that the doppelganger precedent was set. (laughs) That's the day where they just started wheeling in people that looked vaguely like the person. Say which one he was. Oh, no. Oh, which one? <laughs> like on The Simpsons? Four Crusties? <laughs> they, can't kill us bo- they can't kill us both and they start doing the swap thing and Homer's like, hey, good work, Crusty. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, afterwards, Darnay, who's just got just got off these charges, goes for a drink with his lawyers and this is where we find out how... Glue- we talking ringing out a rag? Oh, yeah. they And, the, and top shelf stuff. You've just... You've just <laughs> You've just been acquitted of treason. Yeah, you can Dom, go. Dom Perignon. Knock yeah. off the Dom Perignon, smash it on a towel. <laughs> yeah. Let's Chuck, stand under and yeah. suck. Chuck it on a beach towel. <laughs> Mate, I could suck the froth off a few towels tonight. <laughs> I reckon we should bring this into lingo. Suck a few I towels. Could, I could ring, ring out a few rags tonight, oh. you know what I mean? Man, I was ringing till 4 a.m. last night. <laughs> no no rags, doilies. We're rich now. Oh, yes. <laughs> La-dee-da. Well, last night What's... I was ragging off a, a velvet jacket. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined a perfectly good velvet jacket. Oh, my doily that I'm ringing off is made with a golden thread. <laughs> Let me tell you. I there it is. Sucking silk tonight, boys. <laughs> I'm sucking silk. I'm sucking silk dry. <laughs> 
<laughs> now it's starting to sound like it's going to confuse someone. I reckon. <laughs> Who, who's Silk? What's going on? Can I have a couple of rags on tap? <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, rags in sink. Just <laughs> pull from sink. Yeah. Round of rags for the boys. <laughs> Gotta get a jug of rags. <laughs> yeah, get a jug. <laughs> a jug. Oh. So he goes off for a drink afterwards, a couple of rags with the lawyers to say thanks for getting us off, lads. And um, this is where we find out how gloomy the individual that is uh, Carton, Sydney Carton, is the one that looked a lot like Charles Darnay. Right. Uh. The one that stood up and said, huh? Lucky, huh? lucky huh? he was there. Lucky, huh? Lucky. And he looks so much like him that the whole crowd in the courtroom who hadn't noticed him before goes, <gasps> <laughs> like he'd taken off like a like a potato sack over his head. He was wearing hessian this whole time. Much like when uh, Lionel Hutz on The Simpsons did the tie trick. <laughs> I thought about it. I'm not wearing a tie at all. <laughs> You'll be very surprised to see <laughs> that I am not wearing a tie. <gasps> So I'm pretty sure there's an audible gasp when that's revealed as well. Yeah, that was so is. clear, very funny. Do you understand what that Simpsons <laughs> yeah. thing is yeah. funny? Yeah, <laughs> The ties, you can see it in his in his like <laughs> in his sleeve. Oh, how could they not see that? Bit of fun. That's that's fun. based on Taylor's Two Cities, yeah. I like recounting yeah, Simpsons things and then saying, "Do you see why that's funny?" <laughs> I you, you get don't the joke. Even. I, bet I you love don't even. understanding comedy. I think that's the spice of life is yeah. really breaking down why I laugh yeah. until I can't feel laughing anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm there. I'm there right now. Do you ever get the thing where you're like watching something by yourself and you hear laughter and then you realise it's you? Oh, no. Uh... You ever do the thing? Like, it's it's really slight. You like you hear yourself laugh before you realise you're laughing. Yeah, no, I think yeah. I, I think I know what that is. Are you is. trapped in some sort of vortex? Well, but I, it's because the you you rare you laugh a lot less when no one else is around. Yeah, I think so. Because we're social, it makes sense. Yeah, laughter's contagious and it's a social thing. But yeah, it is interesting. So when you do laugh by yourself, it's like, oh, that really got me by surprise. Yeah, you. So got maybe that's spooked. why. Yeah. Why you're. Yeah, I reckon that happened to me the other day. But I, yeah, it took yeah. me a second to understand what you're talking about, which happens a lot because I'm real slow. <laughs> no, well, that's exactly what happens with your brain and the laughter when you're yeah. alone. You're just like, ha ha, that's me. <laughs> and you just get into a feedback loop at that point. Yeah, I, I find it funny, and then I, I'm, I'm like that for days. Someone has to come home and really <laughs> cut, cut. Are you saying cut? No, I'm saying cut, but that's so angry that they were like, cut. Cut and scene. Scene. Cut. Yeah, cut. Cut. All right. I said cut. I stopped laughing. I'm like, thank you so much. Now thank I'm you. in the zone. Thank you and good night. So uh, he goes out for a drink. This is Darnay, the ch- the French man who has just gotten off, and uh, he goes out with Sydney Carton. And we discover that Sydney Carton is a bit of a gloomy individual. He's a drinker, real big drinker. Dislikes himself and dislikes everyone around him. When uh, Darnay thanks Carton for getting him acquitted, Carton tells his client that he doesn't really like him very much. He says, I am a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth and no man on earth cares for me. End quote. Suck it up. The rag. He sees himself as having wasted his life and having no chance of redemption, uh, something that causes him to drink lots. Darnay leaves and Carton, who's the one that looks a lot like Darnay, is upset because Darnay reminds him of the person that he could have been. He sees it as like looking in a mirror at like uh, the better version of himself. Tale of two cities. Yes, a tale of two reflections. <laughs> and maybe if he'd been a good person, Lucy, the daughter of the doctor, might have noticed him. Wait, so I'm slightly confused now. So it's the guy who got off 
or the lawyer. The is, lawyer. He's the Carton he, who he's, thinks he's a... He's gloomy. He thinks he, he's basically like, I'm a loser. I've wasted my life. I, there's no way for me to redeem myself. It's so funny. It's like, man, just have a go. <laughs> you could do it. Just do yeah. it. It's so weird to like be in that spot. No, he's this absolutely given up. This carton is half empty. <laughs> this carton is very <laughs> empty. I read this whole book and thought his name was Carlton. Ah. Don't know why I was misreading it for 400 pages. And Carlton's then, uh, great. Only when on a closer inspection of these characters, I was like, oh, this is Carton. Lake of milk. <laughs> yes. Ah. <laughs> Did I, have I just um, misunderstood depression a bit there? Just be better. <laughs> just live a better life now. <laughs> Has he tried smiling more? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, Sydney, you have got to try yoga. <laughs> just shaking him. God. God. <laughs> <laughs> Your exasperated yell makes every name the same sound. <laughs> it's how it cut again. Was, to be fair, I was yelling cut. Okay. Oh, okay. I was yelling cut. Okay. Sorry, Mo's making fun of my uh, earlier attempts at yelling Cass angrily. <laughs> cut. Carton. It does sound a lot like Carton too. And also, Matt. Matt. Sounds very similar. So um, anyway, that's uh, Sydney Carton, who will keep appearing throughout this book. Uh, Jarvis Laurie, finally, who's our banker, who went to Paris and back, becomes a trusted friend to the Manettes. He's the one that um, rescued the doctor and his daughter, basically brought them back or brought the doctor back. The doctor has recovered from his illness and has become very close with his daughter, Lucy. They've had a, a very nice relationship, father-daughter relationship, even though they were apart for 18 years. That's good. And uh, Lucy, who's the very attractive one, apparently has hundreds of suitors who who uh, seek her hand in marriage. That's a it wild says scenario. It isn't says it? It's in here. It says ten, tens, no hundreds. Wow, wow, that sounds like a nightmare. You so, know, you think of one of those reality shows where they've got to choose from twelve. Oh no! Imagine a hundred. Actually, there are, there are shows I think that uh, where there's one person and a wall. Oh, potential, and then that, they slowly the drop. Yeah, maybe. I'll, is that like hundreds? If you are the one, mm, I think I might be twenty-four. Okay, <laughs> I don't count so good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good quarter. Yeah, but yeah, that's heaps more. Uh, if you had a hundred, that's that oh. sounds stressful. You could you. It would be tricky to throw a ball for everyone to attend. You know. Yeah. I went to I did basketball or something yep. like that. <laughs> it would be difficult while. to throw a ball at all of them. <laughs> yeah. First you'd have to get 100 balls. <laughs> <laughs> and whew. And you'd just have to be very accurate. <laughs> Back in those days, you know. Now you get the one ball and you throw lots. It just takes longer. Right. And sustainability. Do you throw ball? Is that what you would do? 100 suitors, you'd throw a ball and then just sort of do the rounds? Is that yeah. what you're thinking? Well, it's, it's kind of like a bouquet toss. Okay. I will choose... My husband, based on the best catcher. Ah, that's smart. Throw a ball at a ball. Yeah. yeah. What? Wait, what? <laughs> why is there a ball being thrown a ball at? Well, I think that's the bouquet. Or so you're throwing a bouquet at the ball. Instead of a ball. No, a ball instead of a bouquet. So you throw it back. Okay. So we're no longer at a no, ball. No, bouquet. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah, we'll throw a ball at a ball. Chuck a ball back. Not throw at a ball, ball at another ball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... The, oh no. You gotta have a ball to get a ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh right, as in like to host a party. <laughs> this is a nightmare. <laughs> Why did we only make one word for I would two love, things? Love if you turned up in a ball gown and you just hollered out a giant basketball. Matt and I turn up to the same event with really different ideas <laughs> yeah. as what's happening. Huh? 
Is this the ball you wanted? I've been trying to work out for weeks to get my throwing arm good. <laughs> Matt is in the most beautiful gown you have ever seen in your life. I've learned how to waltz. <laughs> he looks amazing. Oh, my God. Who is he? Is that his second bloom? <laughs> I finally had it. <laughs> so uh, Carton, our gloomy lawyer, also hangs around and they form a bit of a crew. So Jarvis, Laurie, the banker, Dr. Manette and his daughter and Carton. They all sort of hang out together. Do they? Why are they nice to Carton? It sounds like he isn't a good friend. He's not a good. I think they feel a bit sorry for him. Right. He's not very good with things. Well, there must there must be some redeeming thing if they want to keep him around, and he also wants to stay around. That's right. There must I suppose be I haven't read the book, so I can't really talk. No, there must I? be. Yeah, you're Maybe right. They're breaking him down. Maybe he's starting to warm his cold heart. Maybe he thinks there's another way. Maybe Charles is like, oh, I've got something good for book three. Let's just <laughs> oh. keep him. Oh. Yes. Oh, no, Carton likes Lucy, doesn't he? Carton, Carton does like Lucy. Well, yeah, every, oh, well, that's why he's Lucy. staying. Half of London likes Lucy. <laughs> there are 200 people Everyone in London. Everyone loves Lucy. Is that anything? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> loves Lucy. That was a... Oh, are you okay? <laughs> Matt just got electrocuted, I think. No, I just, I just hit the mic and it, 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 um, it shocked me. It did look like you got electrocuted. <laughs> oh, it shocked me. Yeah. That's not what I meant, but yes. <laughs> Oh, the, oh, the English, English language, <laughs> my God. A tale of two meanings. It's terrifying. So that's over in London, but remember, this ain't no tale of one city. This oh. is a tale of two. So we've got to go back over to Paris, where the rich are still oppressing the poor for their own financial gain. We hear of one lord in the royal court, the Monseigneur, who has four people just to make his daily hot chocolate. Okay. Just tell. Uh, do you have steps? I'm very interested in this. All right, let's look it up. Uh, chapter seven. Of- I'd love you didn't to be- make notes. You didn't include this in your report. I, I did definitely. I was definitely um, interested in. Imagine that being your full time job to make a quarter of a hot chocolate a day. Oh, I'd do it. I'd do that. Do you ha- do you guys have well? Imagine um, they paid looking. well. Do you have a favorite hot chocolate recipe? Oh, or like a favorite hot chocolate brand? No, Milo. That's no. not really hot chocolate, is it? I do love. No, Milo. I haven't had a hot. Ch- I've only ever. I haven't had a hot chocolate homemade in a long, long time. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Day I, I don't. That's the only hot drink I'll drink is a hot chocolate. Yeah, oh, right. I love a hot or chocolate. a soup. I've had three Earl Grey teas today. <laughs> wow. Well, you okay, man? Fuck, that's a lot. I'm You're buzzing. Drinking, you're drinking for for me. Are you drinking my tea as well? Yeah, drinking for three. I'm having twins, <laughs> <laughs> and they love tea. <laughs> they love tea. I'm wringing it out in a rag. <laughs> All right, I've got it here. Right my belly button. Is that how it works? <laughs> Someone's doing body <laughs> shots out of your belly button. <laughs> Babies. Oh, oh, what? My unborn twins. Right, that belly button. Wait, no, it's their belly button. Yeah, it's their belly. Does my belly button connect to theirs? How does this no. whole thing work? Belly button is your old mouth. Okay. So your old mouth, your new mouth attaches to their old... Your okay. Your second. <laughs> your new mouth. Your new mouth attaches to their first mouth. Baby's first mouth. Right. Is that your second bloom? <laughs> baby's, first you... <laughs> baby's first mouth. Baby's first mouth. Can't wait to pick him up. Baby's first mouth. <laughs> is he old enough yet? <laughs> oh, this is all real gross. Then you cut off their mouth. They get new mouth. Yeah, you cut off their mouth. Yep. Mm, fantastic. All right, I've got it here. Chapter seven. Yep. I'm glad Which we padded. Called... We padded. Some real normal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which is called Monsignor in town. This morning's hot chocolate could not so much as get into the throat of Monsignor without the aid of four strong men beside the cook. Yes, yes it took four men. 
Because <laughs> everyone reading that is like, Beside what? the cook. <laughs> yeah, so five, really. Oh. All four ablaze with gorgeous decoration and the chief of them unable to exist with fewer than two gold watches in his pocket, emulative of the noble and chaste fashion set by Monsignor to conduct the happy chocolate to Monsignor's lips. One lackey carried the chocolate pot into the sacred presence. A second milled and frothed the chocolate with the little instrument he bore for that function. A third presented the a the favoured napkin. A fourth, he, the two of gold watches, poured the hot chocolate out. It was impossible for Monsignor to dispense with one of these attendants on the chocolate and hold his high place under admiring heavens. Wow, there you go. Holy moly. They don't even give the recipe. Yeah. So, <laughs> I want to know what a I rich mean, man's there's hot no, chocolate there's is. There's no recipe. You just need four. I mean, one of the guy's jobs was it literally to like present a napkin. The cook makes it and then the four people are just giving it to well, him. They're the, like, and they're like members of like Cirque du Soleil or something. Yeah. There's napkin. There's poor man. <laughs> That's his name. Napkin. <laughs> Come in. Napkin. How'd you get that nickname? <laughs> Funny story. <laughs> Took lots of naps. Napkin, poor man, Miller. Gold watch. Gold, gold watch is poor man. Okay, gold watch, napkin, one who mills. And Pora? No, Pora was Pora's a gold watchman. watch. Oh, man. He- two gold watches, though. Two series. Oh, exactly. And what's two times two? For me. Yeah. Well, that checks out. That does work. So, Twos are everywhere, man. Wow. I'm guessing a hot chocolate is just like a some sort of cocoa powder and milk and hot water. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, and a sugar. Ah, uh, sugar. Oh, the like... chocolate powder is not sugary enough? Sugar. Well, no, because they're milling the chocolate. So I would imagine it's oh, cocoa beans what does that milled mean? with sugar. <laughs> they, might, they might be milling the sugar as well. Mill. That means making a hat, right? That's Milner. One of my passions. That's um, it's Milner. party time. It's Milner time, and it's where you get your best hat on. Oh, okay. The um, and what? So what's Miller? Miller. Miller's when you the process of turning like uh, a grain into a powder. So oh, flour yes. is milled. Oh, flour mill. Yep. Um, if you've ever known anyone in your life to have a thermomix, uh, one of the features yeah, to brag about that. on the thermomix is that you can mill your own flour. Oh, wow. so you'd put in. Grain and then yeah. it would just mush it down. Yeah, it um, makes it into a very fine powder. Matt That's and I milling. aren't lucky enough to mill around with millionaires that no. can afford a thermomix. <laughs> yeah, we. Do, I've got a, a a pestle. What do you call it? A mortar and pestle. Mortar and pestle. Basically, uh, the original thermomix. <laughs> in some ways. So, could you mill in a mortar and pestle? Um. Oh, I reckon. Yeah. No. Why not? You're making it a powder. It might not be as effective as something with a lot of high-speed blades or a windmill, if that is indeed what it does. Oh, that's where the old ones had millers had windmills. Oh, my God. Windmill? Miller? It all makes sense. (laughs) The windmill wasn't a character that had been written into my life story until right at the end. But it was him all along. In the bin. In the bin. Oh, windmill... Is a Mill House another Simpsons oh, reference? Oh, fantastic. That's here so right now. So we're back to Dickens. <laughs> back to Dickens. And th- basically the whole purpose of that description was to just just show how opulent the rich are. and How much they're begging for a revolution. Yes, because they're paying for that extravagance by taxing the poor people that can't even afford to feed their families. And then paying a small part of it back to them, some of them. Well, it's to bring a napkin. Not even a small part. I think this is um, a really interesting thing that is 
I've, I've heard used as an example to describe wealth disparity, like in present day, where it's like people who um, are billionaires will never meet someone outside of the very wealthy because the people they employ will be on a really, really high salary because they can afford to pay it. So if you have, if you are extravagantly wealthy, if you're hiring someone to do a job for you, you would get the top tier within that like within that field. So the best napkin holder going. Yeah, well, they said that um, Mr. Poor Man had two gold watches. Uh, and they right. were saying that they were all in really, really nice clothes as well, which means that they're, like, within the picture of being, like, they're Probably taxing Reebok pumps. The, yeah, Reebok pumps, and they've got someone else to pump them for him. Yeah. Right, as a pumper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, that an extra degree of wealth Billy, disparity. Uh, Jimmy Cassidy. Uh, that's a <laughs> reference that's not worth saying. He was an old old jockey. His nickname was <laughs> <laughs> Let us know if you got that. <laughs> anyway, another lord. I'm starting to realise why I haven't been on this show for over a year. Was no, I like this last we're time? Having a good time. We're having a good I'm having a good time. And we are getting through the story. Another lord, uh, Marquis Evermond, races his horse and cart through the poor slums of Paris, laughing at nearly running over the peasants. Really painting these rich people as uh, supervillains. He eventually does run over a small child and kills the kid. Holy oh, shit. Oh, jeez Louise. The child's father, named Gaspard, is distraught and the Marquis just throws a few coins at him in disgust. Our wine shop owner and our secret revolutionary, Monsieur Defarge, tries to comfort Gaspard by telling him that due to their living conditions, the boy is probably better off dead than alive. Oh Not a great thing gosh. to say. Oh my gosh. Trying to find a, a nice way to say it. The Marquis hears this and likes the wisdom from the peasant and throws a coin at him too. But as the Marquis drives away, the coin is thrown back at the carriage. The Marquis curses the poor and tells them that he'd gladly run them all down. Oh, why didn't they kill him? Well, the Marquis continues on to the village where he is the lord, where he collects the, the taxes and gets his hot chocolate poured. The village is also full of starving and exploited people. Later that night, the Marquis is visited by his nephew from England. The man's name is Charles. We already know him as Charles Darnay, the man that was on trial for treason uh, earlier. His real name. Like another guy. Yes, exactly. He looks like Carton. His real name is Charles Evermond, and he's the nephew to this very wealthy man. It turns out that he is by birth an aristocrat. And he will, by birth, inherit his uncle's land and title when his uncle dies. But Charles has returned from England to denounce the family name as he sees it as being associated with fear and slavery. His uncle just laughs at him and, and uh, implores his nephew to accept his natural destiny. That's ominous. Yeah. Also, love that his name Charles. I did liken this to a fanfic earlier. Now it's a self-insert. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the man giving up, uh, the man turning his back on the aristocracy is named Charles. Yeah. He's really claiming that. I feel like surely accept it and then just be better to the people. Don't tax them so hard and because it's going to be you or someone else being an arsehole to them. So if you don't like it, take the gig and then just share it all around. Disrupt Let everyone have from hot the chocolate. Inside. That probably would have been better, to be honest. <laughs> He really should have thought of that. It, it's Kicking himself, this, guy, this fictional guy. Use the wealth you already have to help those you can't and then change the system so that you're able to be constructive. Because what if he just quits, what, what's he going to do? Yeah. If well, you've spent a lifetime building skills, you've got to adapt the skills to your new moral goal. You can't abandon what you do. Who will you help then? Well, he does abandon 
the role. He says, I'm going back to England and I, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And he sort of leaves. The next morning, in a sign of things to come, his uncle, the Marquis, is found dead. All right, that feels right. Ooh. Stabbed through the heart by Gaspard, the peasant whose son he ran down and killed. Yeah. No, I feel fair. like I feel like that. Yeah. I feel like he was kind of, I don't like to victim blame, but it feels like he was kind of asking for it a bit. <laughs> Attached to the knife is a note that says, quote, drive him fast to his tomb. This from Jacques. Remember Jacques being the code name the revolutionaries used. Oh, yes. So basically also, we're coming for you. Uh, the man that Marge had an affair with on The Simpsons. Oh. Was it? She didn't, no, she didn't his... end up having an affair. Oh, close. Well, an emotional affair. Yeah, well, because when she was driving to his house, she kept seeing all the couples together. And then in a, in a, um, in a clip show episode that The Simpsons did later on, Marge says, thank God I drove down that like strangely romantic street or something. <laughs> yeah. And then Homer's there like, yeah, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's the first time he's heard about it and she's telling the kids, Ah, the Simpsons. <laughs> That's fun. Jacques. Jacques. Go on, March. Pick up Homer. Pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Homer? <laughs> no, just the name of my balls. <laughs> my balls, no. <laughs> so anyway, it's all about to kick off, basically, revolution. The, uh, the tensions are rising. The poor will no longer take it. We're not going to take it anymore. No, we're <laughs> not going to take it. That was written about that. I also, the, before you had another hair metal song go through my head when you said, um, stab through the heart oh, and yeah. you're <laughs> to blame. My brain does that all the time. Just, <laughs> old songs, someone will say three words and, and then like, I'm, I'm drifting off yeah. with Bon Jovi or something. My next sentence here is, they took a holiday to Panama. <laughs> uh, a year passes and Dane, who remember... Charles Darnay is secretly the heir to the Evermond lordship, the one that's just turned his back on his aristocracy, uh, aristocratal roots. <laughs> Let's pretend that's a word. He's returned to England and he's making a much more moderate but much more just living by teaching French. Uh, oh, okay. So, okay. No, he still had skills that he could apply. No, that's good. Yeah, so he's, I mean, he's not wealthy by any stretch anymore, but... But he could have... Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like if you really hate the system... Why would you let some the next person yeah. there's just going to keep it going probably? Exactly. Maybe oh, you know what? So, if this is a self insert, Charles knows the revolution's coming. He's just going to get out before the killing right. starts. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe he's like, I have to go, people will die. And people are like, why wait? Why are you leaving? He's like, oh, it's better. <laughs> yeah, it just feels better. Yeah, to... go take French. I've seen the following 80 years. I mean, nothing. <laughs> This doesn't end well for you, me. What? Um, I, uh, uh, bye. So he goes, this is Charles, and sees Dr. Manette and asks for his daughter Lucy's hand in marriage. Remember, Lucy, lots of people have attempted this before. She's got hundreds of suitors. But Darnay assures the father that he, this marriage wouldn't affect their father-daughter relationship. Uh, Dr. Manette accepts if Lucy accepts. He says, I approve if she wants to marry you. That, I imagine that they've got a... A very close relationship now, and they—he's worried that she'll move along. Well, they probably live together, move, right? Yeah, they do live together. That she'll marry someone else, move away, and then maybe they won't have this relationship. Remember, they missed eighteen years. Yeah, together. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was that sucks. I mean, was that that was probably maybe noteworthy at the time? Could some dads have gone? Yes, I'll I'll get I'll get it happening. Should we let her know? Nah, I'll tell her later. I'll surprise her. Yeah, yeah. She lot... probably won't want to. I'll just. <laughs> 
We'll just get her dressed up on the day. It's fine. Yeah, a lot of stuff written around this time that I'm reading is a bit like that. Yeah, right. But wanting to be truthful to his new father-in-law, Dane attempts to tell him his real name and title. He wants, he wants to tell him that I'm Charles Evermond. But the doctor stops him and asks to only know if Lucy accepts the marriage and on the day of the wedding. He says, don't tell me now. Tell me on the day of the wedding. Why? That seems unnecessary. Yeah, what's unless that it's for? setting up. Who's that, that for? What's that setting up in the story? Oh, uh, that's for plot. That's certainly for plot. <laughs> uh, Lucy does accept the marriage proposal, but her husband-to-be, Dane, is not the only one of the people that I've mentioned that wants to marry Lucy or loves her. The two lawyers, uh, first off, Striver, who I uh, briefly mentioned, wants to ask her to marry him, but he's talked out of the proposal, and also his assistant, our Sydney Carton, the angry man, he approaches Lucy one day and admits his love to her. He tells her that he knows she could never love a bad guy like himself, but that he just wanted her to know, he wanted to say it out loud once, and that in future he'll pretend he's never told her and that everything will go back to normal, but he just wanted her to know that he loves her. Okay, man. Big thing to drop on someone. <laughs> yeah. She's very nice about it. She tries to encourage him to turn his life around, but he thinks he's already too far gone and that nothing can save him now. She's like, well, I mean, just you could try. <laughs> you just... It's been it's been year a year, right? Yep. And he's not made any attempts to do anything. No, he's just drinking himself into a. I'm picturing him with his hand, the back of his hand on his forehead. Oh, <laughs> I cannot. For woe is me. <laughs> now, nah, honestly, um, if he is depressed clinically, then obviously there are other things at play. I haven't even done a psychological degree. So really? I don't even know. Yeah. No, but the I guess the way it's being described is very much like maybe it was for writing's sake. It, it's it's like how you will never uh, experience the passage of time quicker than if you live near someone who's learning a musical instrument because they will get really good really quickly if they're practicing all the time and then all of a sudden you look back and hear them and be like, oh, my God, like a month ago they couldn't do that. Right. So it's all that it's not the passage of time, it's the passage of hard work. Right. So if you've got someone near you doing something consistently and you can see a time frame, it's really obvious how much hard work pays off. But when you're the one do, having to do it and put in the effort to do something every day, yeah. then it's really tough. So maybe it's just being like, you had a year and you did nothing. <laughs> Think of what you could have done for a year from now. But she's trying really hard to encourage him, but he's like, don't, don't worry about me. I'll be okay. Yeah, if he's not listening to her, the woman he loves. Yeah. But before leaving, he pledges that he would do anything for her and would gladly sacrifice his own life for hers. Well, why isn't he sacrificing the bad life that he's given himself for her and started living a good one? Yeah. He's just said, I'm not going to change, but I would die. That's change. Yeah, I would change from living to not living. (laughs) Yeah, no, this guy needs help. (laughs) Uh, meanwhile in Paris, the revolution is slowly building. Our wine shop owner, Defarge, grows impatient and complains to his wife that the revolution probably won't come in their lifetime, but she tells him to have patience. She is constantly knitting, never seen without her needles, and w- we've seen her a few times up until now, always knitting, and we later find out, or well, now, that she's knitting a secret list of all the aristocrats that when the time comes, that the revolution should murder. She's got like knitting a list. These little codes. That's so good. In knitting form. When you said patience, I did start singing Guns N' Roses' Patience in my head. (laughs) Remind me how that one goes. I just need a little patience. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. A little patience. He says patience a lot. It's a slow one. There's whistling. 
Whistling. Is he whistling? I imagine he'd be a great yeah. whistler. Yeah, excellent. great voice. Oh, he can whistle. Do you reckon he picked knitting because it literally relies on tension? <laughs> well, and she's constantly doing it too, so mm. it's building and building and building. Seems like an unaf- uh, inefficient way to write a list. It would take a while, wouldn't it? But yeah. no one suspects the person knitting. Oh, I wonder what that team. What's that scarf you're wearing? It's oh, in code, isn't it? Footy team. Yeah, yeah they all say code. shark. <laughs> We know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> the word for everything. <laughs> it's, okay. it's confusing at times, yeah. but yeah. Pasta Jacques. <laughs> All right. What? <laughs> so one day, so we're in the wine shop. She's knitting away. One day word comes through that Lucy Manette, who is the daughter of Defarge's friend. Remember, he's the one that rescued the doctor and put him up upstairs and sort of took care of him until that he was taken back to England. Mm-hmm. They find out that the daughter of that doctor that they've known for a long, long time and who was imprisoned by the powerful people that they're trying to rise up against, his daughter is about to marry Charles Darnay, who was secretly Charles Evermond. They're like, she's marrying an enemy of us. What is going on? So Madame Defarge adds Charles Darnay's name to the list of people that should be killed in the revolution. And she says once the the name goes in, you can't take it out. Yeah, you have to... Double stitch? What does that mean? That's a that's a word. You have to, you have unpick, to unstitch. Unstitch. Unrifle with knitting because it's not stitches. She's knitting, yeah? She is knitting. Yeah, knitting's the one where you pull a thread and the whole thing unravels. Right. The golden thread. Ah, that's <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of because there's a lot of knitting going on. The golden thread, maybe. Yeah. Uh, back in London, the happy young couple's wedding day comes and as promised, Charles Darnay privately reveals to his new father-in-law, the doctor, who he really is. He says... I am secretly the aristocrat Charles Evermond, and it does not go down very well. The doctor leaves their pre-wedding meeting looking deadly pale, so he's this is before the wedding. He's like, "All right, Dad, this is who I am." He doesn't say anything, but the doctor goes off looking deadly pale. And later that day, he is discovered to be back at his shoemaking bench, back oh. in his psychosis, thinking he is a prisoner again. Bit of PTSD coming back. And uh, hearing who his son-in-law really is has caused him to relapse mentally. Shit. Now, this continues on for 10 days, during which time Lucy and her husband are on their honeymoon, so they don't know that he's relapsed. Oh. Where was he at the wedding then? So they went to the wedding, but later that night, I guess he's, everything's processed, uh, Jarvis Laurie, the bank man and their family friend, comes along and finds him making these shoes, and he's like, okay... <laughs> Hey, buddy. And he doesn't remember who he is and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he watches over the doctor for 10 days. But after 10 days, he comes around and he's back to normal, back to his normal modern self. Speaking about the relapse in third person, the doctor theorizes that for that to happen to someone, something must have triggered a terrible memory, but that he thinks a similar relapse is unlikely in the future, that it probably won't happen again. Eventually, still speaking in third person. So he's like, if that was to happen to someone else, in third person, the doctor agrees for the bench and tools to be destroyed to try and discourage him from ever going back into that. After their honeymoon, Lucy and Charles Darnay return and their first visitor is Sidney Carton, our drunk, gloomy man, who apologises for being uh, drunk and rude to Darnay on the night of his trial. trial. Remember he said to him, I don't like you. No one likes me, I don't like you or anyone. He ret- and he retracts that. Particularly you. Except Lucy. <laughs> oh, Carton. Oh, Carton. And Darnay tells Carton, I've always seen you as a thrend- friend. Don't worry about the comments. I thought you were going to say threat. <laughs> always I've always seen threat. you as a threat. Now yeah. it's time to die. A golden threat. <laughs> uh, Carton asks 
So he's like, all right, we can be friends. We're, we're officially friends now. This is nice, even though we've known each other for so many years. Carton asks if he can be a privileged person of the household and come and go as he pleases. Is that a thing? That I imagine that that must have been a thing back then. And they accept it. They say, he says, once or twice a year, if I need to come by, am I allowed to do that at any hour? And they're like, okay. You basically give him like a little scan pass. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get like yeah. a copy of the key and yeah, a little let yourself in. Little ID card. Yeah. <laughs> to sign in with the cat. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's a it's a weird thing. But it, they they're like, all right. Uh, and um, uh, Dane, who's the new husband, says to his wife, Carton, he's got a few bad traits, doesn't he? I don't know about him. Secretly says, that, and his wife says, I feel sorry for him. And then Dane's like, my God, I've just married such a good person. She's such a lovely lady. All right, I'm going to be extra nice now to Carton. She sort of talks him round to being like, yeah. we should be sorry, feel sorry for this guy, not sort of bitch about him behind his back. Right. So she's a very nice person. Eight years pass and suddenly we're in 1789. Lucy and Charles Darnay have two children by this point. Sadly, the son died after a few years. But little Lucy Jr. is the pride and joy of the family. So they have one daughter. Our gloomy man, Carton, becomes a good friend uh, to the family and little Lucy is especially fond of him. He becomes sort of like an uncle to her. Oh, that's nice. So things are going okay in London, but over in Paris, it's all kicking off. On July 14th, 1789, the Bastille prison, which once held Dr. Manette, was stormed by revolutionaries led by the wine shop owners, the Defarges, Defarge, with the uh, knitting needle still in hand, and the French Revolution has begun. The, is it the one thing she's knitting? Yeah, I think it's just constantly... It must be so long. Eight years later. No, it must have been. She must have broken it off in that time. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be the longest scarf ever made. <laughs> and they're like scanning through. I mean, a lot of people are about to have their heads cut off, so maybe there is literally hundreds of names on this list. Once inside the Bastille, Defarge forces a guard to show him Dr. Manette's cell, 105 North Tower, where he searches it meticulously. He finds something, but as the reader, we actually don't know what it is at this stage. So we find something in the doctor's cell. So just keep that at the back of your hey. mind. Any ideas of what he would have found? A golden thread. Oh. It hasn't come up yet. No, it, may, it must be the re- reference to the knitting, surely. Uh, meanwhile, his wife, Madame Defarge, knitter of the death list, shows herself to be... Uh, <laughs> That's what I would have called the chapter. <laughs> knitter of the death list. Uh, she shows herself to be extremely vengeful and very, very violent. She cuts off a man's head. Lots of people die that day. Guards have their heads put on pikes and prisoners are released. A lot of bloodshed. Around the country, representatives of the aristocracy are dragged from their luxurious homes to be killed. Chateau Evermond, where Charles Darnay had given up his title, is burned to the ground. A man who once advised hungry peasants that they should just eat grass is hanged. It takes three times before the rope actually holds him up, so it collapses three times. And his head is then cut off and his mouth is stuffed with grass. So they're quite symbolic with their, with their murders. And that is only a small fraction of what is to come over the next decade of the revolution. Our final chapter of book two, where we'll leave our story today, sees three more years pass and France is in turmoil. The countryside is littered with burnt buildings. Thousands are murdered. Many wealthy French people, those that have survived so far, send their money and possessions to England for safekeeping. And this brings us to Jarvis Laurie, our bank manager. Uh He is actually sent to the Paris branch of his bank to try and hold it all together and protect important documents from being looted. So he goes basically to this war zone. Before he leaves, Laurie, 
receives a letter addressed to a certain the Marquis St. Evermond, the real name of our friend Charles Darnay. Laurie brings it up because he has been having trouble locating this Evermond and he has no idea that that is actually the secret identity of his close friend. Right. He brings it up with Charles, who's who he's actually talking about. He's like, I can't find this guy. Can you believe it? Darnay tells Laurie that, oh, he's a friend of mine. I know Evermond. Smart. Give me the letter and I'll be able to get it to him. And he's like, all right. So he gets the letter himself, Darnay. He reads it and it's from a local tax collector that he used to know called Gabel. He was a servant of Darnay's uncle and has been arrested. Basically, because Charles Darnay skipped out on the title, the house was empty and the person that had to keep the upkeep of the property was this Gabel guy. So he collected taxes to keep the chateau going. Mm. But now the peasants have risen up and they've imprisoned him and he's expecting to be murdered at any minute. He's written to Evermond saying, hey, man, I was only looking after your house and now I'm going to be murdered. Can you come and save me? I love that. Yeah, like being able to write, I'm picturing with a quill. <laughs> He's like, I'm about to be murdered anyway. Let me write a long <laughs> quill letter. It, it is like it is, the, the letter is is written out in detail. It is exactly like that. Uh, Darnay decides that he must go and save this man, Gabel. Surely it would be weeks later by that point. Well, so without telling his wife or child, he writes a letter and then he sets off for Paris. Oh, that, my God, tell them. Yeah, tell them. That is the end of book Oh, that is a sick cliffhanger. Wait, he never told his wife who he was. He just told her dad. He told her dad, no, so the wife does not know. Ah, Yeah, that's weird. That is weird. If you're going to tell the dad, why wouldn't you tell the wife? Hmm. Because he's his daughter. (laughs) He has to know who he's giving his daughter to. I see. He did say that she had to pick, but he did still have to ask. Okay. Different time. Different times. So just to recap there, so two people are now going to be in Paris for our book the third. We've got Laurie, Jarvis Laurie at the bank, looking after that. And we also have Charles Darnay, a.k.a. Evermond, going to sort out, hopefully, his old servant who's been imprisoned. This seems great. What a great-seeming book. What do you reckon? You, what do you it's, think, Cass? It's more fun than I thought it would be. I'm excited to find out what was found in the cell. Who found the thing in the cell again? Uh, that was Defarge, mm. the wine shop owner. He went straight there and oh, he was looking for something. Rag. And he's found something. <laughs> he's all Wine rag. Oh, I love a wine rag. <laughs> <laughs> or age 18 years. <laughs> so, yeah, he found something. And that, yeah, that will come up in book the third. Oh, that's exciting. I want to know if there's like another sort of twist where the wealthy aristocrat had something to do with imprisoning the father or something or his family did. Because when he said his name, it got bad. Yeah, that gave him these big flashbacks. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yes, yes. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Well, we'll find out about that on uh, our next episode, Book the Third. But at the end of uh, Book the Second, I'm going to ask you to score it out of five as as you've heard it here today. Funny to so I'm it's judging the book, not judging your telling of the book. Well, I guess it's both. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I enjoy. I give your telling. you a, you a one, Dave, but the book <laughs> a five. I really liked it. Out of five, it's hard to know what do people normally give a like fours and. Fours well, sometimes and people above. hate it, but sometimes people like. If you really like it, it's usually a four, a yeah. four or above. I, I feel like it's a four for me. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, thought it was interesting. It was, I love this sort of Shakespearean things like. I'll tell you this thing on a future date. It's like, just say it <laughs> say now. Say it now. Sort of, yeah, those things are always weird, but it, mm. I guess that's just how people used to write books. 
What was the question? Uh, four, four out of five from Matt. Yes, Cass. I'm going to go... Yeah, I'm going to go on a three and a half. I absolutely loved your retelling of it. Thank you. Um, I won't take it personally if you dislike the book. It's fine. Thank you. Appreciate that. Though. No, it's it's always really interesting to hear plot lines and things like that from things that are classics because in many cases, I don't know, with this one, I don't know the massive historical context. I haven't read a lot of old books, but it's always really cool to see things that become an archetype later on. To be like, oh, you know, seeing what sounds original still, what doesn't sound original anymore because things have been sure, done Well, it is sometimes difficult. You kind of go like, you know, an old murder mystery often like, man, that was so predictable. And it's like, well, at the time, no one had ever yeah. done that before. Uh, a bit hack, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I still think the story is still really interesting. It still seems to hold up as a plot. I want to find out what happens at the end of yeah. this. Book. Oh, exciting! I'm happy about that. I think yeah. that's what, yeah, that's what made me give it such a high score. Is I think I love the. I'm watching it like a movie as you tell it. I yeah. reckon that opening scene was great. I'd love. Has it ever been done on the big screen? Oh, uh, absolutely. But uh, it's been one of those things that's been adapted many times. But I've yeah. never seen. I don't know if there's like a, a definitive version, like right. you know, one that people will say, "This is you know, this is the classic version." Yeah, mm. Suchet hasn't done one. Basically. Oh, if only, if only David Suchet got in there. There's a 1935, a 1958, and a 1980 version. Hey, let's make one. Yeah, because yeah, as when you were describing the opening scene, it's like, oh, that'd be so good. Yes, we got to do it while Van Dyke's still with us. Got to get him in there. Yeah, nineteen eighty. I'm trying to say he was in the nineteen eighty version. I'm gonna quickly give it a four and a half out of five, which means we average a four between us. That's good. Which I think is pretty good. This is the interesting thing will be because. Endings are the hardest part of any Always. story. So it would be interesting to see if we hold that four-point average. Because it's got the one of the most famous opening lines. Yeah. Let me just tell you, it's also got a very famous closing line. Oh. oh. See if you enjoy that, that. dickhead. Yeah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Dickheads is what he called his fans. <laughs> The postscript. <laughs> I'm, yeah, just Dicko guys. out. <laughs> I'm not even offended. Uh, that does bring us to the end of this episode. But uh, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much for being here. There's one final thing to do, and that is uh, people support this show as well as our other show, Do Go On, and Matt's other show, Primates, and Matt's other, other show, Listen Now. Yes. By supporting us on a little thing called Patreon, where people uh, chip in some cold hard coins in exchange for our bonus content. We put out a couple of episodes of Do Go On that no one else hears every month. And there's a bunch of other things. Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still um, enjoying Cass's idea that Charles Dickens' fans are called dickheads. Yeah. Oh, that's real great. <laughs> I wonder if that's a thing. <laughs> that's what, that's what I'm a dickhead. <laughs> People are proudly like in a club. Everyone stands up at the start and says, hello, dickheads. <laughs> Hi, Hi, dickhead. <laughs> That's actually what um, we, we call people in our Facebook group. Oh, oh, Dickheads. Yeah. Love it. That's it's stuck. I love it so much. It's because they all secretly love Charles Dickens. <laughs> it is a prereq. If you want to join the Facebook group, you have to answer a pop quiz about Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, fair enough too, uh, which I can now do. Mm. Question one, are you a dickhead? Yes. <laughs> yes, big time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one thing that I do though is uh, people tell me they're – through Patreon, their favourite book, and I read them out and we get to talk about them on the air. Would you mind doing that now? Oh, absolutely not. I actually 
the opposite of mind, I would body it. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> uh, not, not a fan of that one. <laughs> I'll call it. I like it a lot. Okay, so we've got three uh, three people with three books here, and thank you for supporting the show. Uh, first of all, to McKenna Middlebrook, who tells us, my favourite book is Hiroshima, or Hiroshima, depending on how you pronounce it. It's true stories about what happened when the Americans dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Very sad, but very interesting. That does sound very sad, I must say. Yes. Mm. That'd be a, a brutal read. Yeah, but there you go. Sometimes um, they are fascinating, though, aren't they? It's good to learn about what shouldn't happen and why it shouldn't happen. Just in case you ever got your finger hovering over that red button. We all want to be informed so that we don't press it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks, McKenna. I would also like to uh, shout out to you and thank, uh, this is all one word, this name, Conordi Ball. Ah, Kenordi Ball. Thank you so much for your support, Kenordi Ball. My favourite book, Kenordi Ball writes, is probably The Great Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham. I don't read much. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, Kenordi Ball. That's the Sam I Am one. Yeah. And it re- it, I reckon, uh, from my memory of it, it's a book about a guy who really needs to know what no means. You know what I mean? He's like, the whole book he's like pesting this, this guy called Sam I Am and he's going, have green eggs and ham. And he's like, I don't want green eggs and ham. And then the next page is, can't have green eggs and ham. I don't want green eggs and ham. Have it with a boat. Have it with a moat. I don't want it with a boat. I don't want it with a moat. I don't want green eggs and ham. But I don't want them, Sam I am. And that's the whole book. And then in the end, he convinces him to have green eggs and ham. So the lesson is, pesta. Wow, it does seem like like someone is out for brunch and <laughs> they're trying to order anything but green eggs and ham. And they're like, mate, that's all we've got. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Green <laughs> eggs. Already, I think, what's wrong with these eggs? And ham. <laughs> and what even is it? Oh, that doesn't sound good at all. It sounds like gibberish. But Kenordi Ball is a fan, and I'm a fan of Kenordi Ball. Ball. And finally, uh, Lewis writes in, favourite book, Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, I read that last year. Oh, they, did you know this? Yeah. A fact here from Lewis. The alternate title is awesome. The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. I don't That's a good name. That's Maybe, very cool. Yeah, that is good. Those last two, um, Slaughterhouse-Five is one of my favourite books, although I can't remember if I've actually finished it, which blows my mind. I should reread it because I have no idea. And um, I think one of my favourite books of all time is Oh Say Can You Say, which is another Dr. Seuss book. I ended ah. up studying linguistics and I can reckon that is what sparked my love of it when oh, I was cool. like five. <laughs> oh Say Can You Say. Yeah. Which, which one's that? It's like a tongue twister one. It's oh, got a fun. green bird on the front from memory. Oh, that rings a bell. Yeah. The one I remember most from childhood, I think, is something like I Wish I Had Duck, duck Feet. feet. Oh, yeah. the, oh, I Wish That I Had Duck Feet. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember anything else about it, but I, my grandparents had it and I loved it then. Mm. And I, it would probably ring bells if I saw it again, but yeah. Mm. Hey, I'm guessing it just goes through wishing he had a lot of different things. Some Maybe an elephant's trunk? Yeah, I think he gets like an elephant's trunk, some sort of a horn thing. He gets a tail. He gets so many things and then decides he likes being himself, I uh. think, at the end, which is nice. And green eggs and ham, he ends up loving the green eggs and ham. And overall, look, not a great message, but trying to get a child to eat food. Right. <laughs> That's what it was about. Surely. Yeah, no. Hopefully it was just that, as, as simple as that. There was another one that was quite a, had a quite a nice message uh, as a kid, which I wouldn't have got that much. But it was something like um, uh, it was, the whole thing was about a journey. You won't know which way to go, but you'll go. All the go, places you'll oh, go. Yeah, that was quite a nice one from memory. Mm. Now that I get it, do I get it? I think you get it. 
Uh, my favorite uh, Dr. Seuss book is one of his earlier ones. It's probably, I think it's his first book. It's called The Pocket Book of Boners. <laughs> and that is That's a real not, book. Is that really? It's not a kid's book, but it is. I, I thought you were going to say, there's a walker in my pocket. Another classic, but that's <laughs> no. really different. I just once had to do some research on him and I was like, what the hell is this? And that came up, The Pocket Book of Boners. It was one of the best-selling paperback books of World War II, apparently. And it, was it actually just illustrations of different erections? No. At the time of its writing, the term boner was commonly used to mean a silly mistake without any... Well, Flanders uses it in that way in The Simpsons a lot. <laughs> a couple of boners? Yeah. <laughs> But I, uh, I just read that one time and I was like, the pocket book of bonus. I love that. Uh, anyway, thanks, Lewis. The Slaughterhouse, uh, Slaughterhouse Five. The plot is wild. He says, time travel, aliens, war-induced post-traumatic stress disorder. What more could you want? It is real. It's a, it's a great book. It's his cla- Vonnegut's classic, I think, mm-hmm. sort of seen as. Yeah, I reckon a few people have uh, suggested the book. And you can do that any time. Suggest a book um, by uh, clicking the link in the description of this episode. Tell me why you want me to do it. And it often inspires I me to do like it. I like Mondays. Tell, Tell me, me why. why. <laughs> God, he's real music jukebox over here. This you guy. should start a podcast. Ah. <laughs> That gives me an idea. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the episode and the appropriate time for you to tell us about your fantastic podcast, Matt. You've got a, a few out there now, three. Yeah, well, if you like listening to me and Cass talk, uh, she's been on my Primates podcast last few weeks. The last one out was about the sitcom community, mm-hmm. modern day classic. And was there a special uh, Primates episode? Yeah, there's a recurring character um, called Annie's Boobs, which is a... Okay. <laughs> a, a primate character lives in the ducts of the of the TAFE or the school, the community college. I did not know that. Uh, and that, yeah, that was good fun talking about that. And the week before that, like I said before, we talked about The Mandalorian, mm. which is a Star Wars and miniseries. What, t- remind uh, me what you called Darth Vader? Uh, Darth <laughs> Trooper. <And> that, um, <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, you know, mm. I had a I had a bad moment. I hope someone got fired for that boner. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real boner. It was a real boner. And the other one, uh, listen now, and that is, uh, it's a music podcast. It's about to go on to a different band, but the first fifteen odd episodes were about the classic Australian pub rock band called Chisel. Who um, we, me and my cousin Sam, who do the podcast, we went and saw them live. A few weeks ago, and we did an episode about that, which I think both of us agree it's the best concert we've ever been to. Love that. And one of the singers of the band is Jimmy Barnes, who's famous for a certain rendition of the Countdown theme song. (laughs) 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 I only exist because of Cold Chisel. Really? My parents met at a Jimmy Barnes concert. Holy shit, you should come on the show. Got to yeah. tell that story in detail. <laughs> One of my proudest jokes I've ever made is saying that I was like one step away from being named Kaysandra. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> I'm proud of that one. That's but amazing. But it's sad to know I've peaked. <laughs> that is so. I have good. to live with that every day. Oh, you sound like a bloody another carton over here. Carton half full over here. Oh no, carton half empty. <laughs> Uh, and yes, so people listen to those. Is that oh no, the the main one, do go on, which I do with you, Dave. <laughs> and what what was the most recent episode? This was something I try and remember to do, but often forget on the other podcast. Is to send them back to do uh, go on with great. Some... I just did a, the topic of Bruce Lee last oh, week. That was great. The life of Bruce Lee. Fascinating story. Well, none of the three of us knew much about him at all. Really so knew ex- nothing about but him. But now, I was excited. Yeah, no, a fair bit that I've, I'll. Remember about 15% of that. And every episode's a pretty in-depth report about a different topic. The week before that was Friends of Rome, one of my favourite uh, Australian favourite bands. I don't even need to put in the uh, the Australian um, thing that... Prefix? Pre- uh, yeah. 
You don't even need to classify. Cla- yeah. yeah? Oh, There's another word I yeah. can't, but anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I've struggled for words all episode, and I, I'm glad it's a bookie show for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is a bookie show. And Sandra, where can we hear you <laughs> doing your pod thing? Um, well, I'm on the last couple of episodes of Primates, if you want to hear me having a wonderful time. Fantastic. Um, um, if you go to sanspantsradio.com, I'm on a Dungeons & Dragons podcast, if you are also that kind of nerd. And <laughs> I'm also on um, just a general comedy one called Shut Up a Second. And Why Am I Sad? we got a bunch going on over there. Um, I reckon someone who should listen to Why Am I Sad is a man named someone Carton. Sydney Carton. Sydney Carton. Carton. Write us in. See if we can give you some advice. We shouldn't be giving advice. We Smile more. Is it that kind of advice? <laughs> oh, God. Imagine. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, at, yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm, it at, is. I'm at Cast Cast Page if you want to find me online. Fantastic. And Matt, you are Matt. Matt Stewart Comedy on Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter? <laughs> Matt Stew underscore art. <laughs> Why do you make me say it out loud? Because <laughs> you're very funny on Twitter. You Both of you are very worth following, I reckon. I did. Oh, thank I, you. I tweeted the other day. I thought it was like super. You know, when you tweet something and then later go, hopefully that wasn't misconstrued. Oh yeah. But I, <laughs> I tweeted a photo of me uh, in bed, going, just here looking for my big break. Where is it? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, are people people aren't going to think that I'm actually thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm I've got some big break coming. I thought it was so ridiculous and then later I'm like I don't think I went ridiculous enough. No, it was very funny. Your expression was wonderful. Um the staging of the photo, there's a slight angle to it, which I was personally a big fan of. Um, right. Go to Matt Stew underscore art on Twitter, make an account, give it a like. Cass, stop it. And they should do the same for you. Cass Cass page, page with an eye. Yes, because I am Cass. <laughs> Well, I think we've just about lost our minds here with the plug yeah. section of the episode. Uh, you can find BookCheat on all the social medias at BookCheatPod. We'll be back with part three, which is actually the second part. It's very confusing. Book the third, let's just say that, where we wrap up Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. But until next time, I'll say thank you for listening and Books, books Forever! Books Forever! This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.